if in fact the jackknife powerbomb was part of this design, what are they going to do now? Improvise? Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not so good old days, of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and sailing through several plate glass windows without evident harm to join me is Alec Bridgen. I mean, I guess there's a door I could have taken, but this is a lot quicker. I mean, it is your house, I guess it's your choice. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) How's it going tonight, Al? Good, how's it going with you? It's going okay, though I I have to admit it felt like a lot more work this month. My break time is over. Yes. (laughs) We are returning from the movie theater to go back to the arena for a look at WCW's 2000 replacement for the Road Wild shows, New Blood Rising. Our time is now. What, like like now now? Yeah. Oh no, Al, the New Blood, they're rising through your floorboards. Quick, pin them down with the table. That was close. <laughs> I bet you guys I don't have floorboards. I don't know what, you, what, you, what you're even seeing. Yeah, you write the script before you look at your buddy's floor, you know. Yeah. Tile. tile yeah, if they get through Terrazzo, I'd be really worried. Yeah, I mean, hey, if anyone could. I mean, Vampiro always does that rise under the ring thing, right? Oh, it's true, yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. New Blood Rising was held on August 13th, 2000 at the Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver, British Columbia, in front of 8,248 fans, of which 5,307 paid. Now, the arena is recorded as holding around 16,000 to 17,500 people, depending on configuration. So WCW's barely got it halfway filled there. Yeah. You can definitely tell. Oh, yeah. Even in bit for the doubt of, say, a couple thousand, maybe, because how they have that stage set up. Because you can see in Sting's entrance, when they do the light flashing... Yeah. They have the back area, so they don't have like a full like circle or like a dome sort of effect on them. But still, that's not 10,000 seats are coming up. Yeah, they've done a decent job with the lighting at times where it kind of like darkens the upper tier of the arena. So you yeah. can't see as well that so many of those are empty. Yeah, like it's really in Sting's entrance. You yeah. really see everything. When you, see, when you have a bright light. Yeah, because they, they, they pointed dead ahead towards the stage, this big flashing strobe light. Yeah, yeah. If you read the wiki page for this this arena, there is zero mention of this show or any WCW shows being yes. here. Excised from the record for probably good reason. Apparently it was a really big venue for rock bands in like the 70s and 80s. Kiss came there twice. And then Kiss came there for this show too yeah. with the demon, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're treated equally well, I'm sure, all three times. Yeah. <laughs> David Bowie also performed there. In fact, recording this performance at the arena released on DVD. Oh, okay. I'll have to track that down and see what the screen looks like. Most recently, it was used as part of a League of Legends tournament in 2017. Okay. Yeah, it's the first esports there. Although my favorite stat I noted was that it's often the fill-in venue, because you know, movies are filmed in Canada to save money, even now. Mm-hmm. So you need venues to match other venues. Like, you can't go to Madison Square Garden, for instance. So you go to here, which is a nice arena, but it's also in Canada, so it's cheaper. Most notably, it's used in the film Slam Dunk Ernest. <laughs> yes, for their basketball arena. So wait, they left that on the wiki page? Yes. 
Oh my gosh. That tells you how much they hate this show. Yeah, like I said, whoever filled the wiki page out, they were very, very thorough with certain details about the band, like which year they performed, which album they're promoting. But yeah, then, then zero mention of this show at all. <laughs> I almost want to go back in and start editing wiki pages and add that. Just see if someone scrubs it again. Yeah. <laughs> but then you realize it's not really worth the effort for this show. Redacted. <laughs> yes. New Blood Rising earned 70,000 pay-per-view buys, solidly in the middle of the pack for WCW in 2000, which was not a particularly good year for the company. Yeah, 70,000 seems pretty low. It, it is, yes. Uh, if I recall correctly, the only one that even hits 100,000 in 2000 or later is Spring Stampede. Oh, wow. Yeah. Everything else is below that. For especially nasty comparison, Al, yes? do you remember what Road Wild 1999 earned in pay-per-view buys? Hmm. Um, I do not offhand. I'm going to say it's probably, was it around 120,000? It is 200,000. Oh, okay. That was a little bowling it. Yeah, so that's a 60, right, almost 60% drop-off, something like that. <laughs> it's, it's pretty large, yeah. That's that big, yeah. Maybe people really paid to see the bikers. <laughs> that's the only thing I could figure. That's probably what they said in the back. But it's like, well, you know, if he'd gone there with the bikers. If we'd gone to Sturgis. See, the, see, Bischoff isn't there now, so oh. there was no one to tell them, no, 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 you really got to go to Sturgis. <laughs> yeah. So New Blood Rising is not an improvement in buy rate, but was it a better quality show than Road Wild 1999? Road Wild 1999 was very, very bad after all. Yes, I think that was considered the worst of the Road Wilds by both of us. Yeah, I believe so. So this has to be better than that, right? I mean, once you've hit the floor, you can't dig further, right? I mean, there are you know floorboards that the New Blood come out from under, so. That's true. They live down there already. Yeah. Well, to find out, let's go to the ring. And now, let's get down to business. You took the belt from around my waist. You wanted something, but you got something else. And in New Blood Rising, I'm putting it back where it belongs. The chosen scum. Number one player hater running around the back talking about booking. This is between me and you. Before you take this belt from around my waist, you're going to have to kill me right here in the middle of the tree. Hold on there, Slapatory. Don't hate the player. Hate the game. Slap Nuts Theater, here's your show. As far as Booker T goes, I wonder how his bad knee's holding up. We're going to go to war. He knows everybody wants that belt. I've carried this company on my back for two years. I've given you people someone to believe in. A hero. Just spit on it. This company's giving you everything on a silver platter. I'm going to go over. I never liked you, Ness. This is going to be a train wreck. Now it's time to pay. Scott Steiner. I don't give a about you. I don't give a about Goldberg. Goldberg is a maniac. I'm a fighter. I don't lose fights. I'm still a man. I can't guarantee I'm going to be real professional. Everybody wants that belt. I'm here to see Kevin Nash beat the crap out of Goldberg. Go Nash. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah.
The 2000-era WCW logo glares at us to kick things off, and we get a video package covering our main event, Booker T versus Jeff Jarrett for the World Heavyweight Championship, as well as the other highlighted match of the evening, Kevin Nash versus Scott Steiner versus Goldberg. In both cases, the video package is put together pretty well, lacking the manic, hyperactive quality of a lot of Russo-era promo packages that we've seen. Mm-hmm. There are some bizarre spots, though. Jeff Jarrett's slapatory line is just bizarre. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they throw in some insider lingo in the Nash-Steiner-Goldberg coverage, like Nash talking about how he's going to go over rather than win. Oh, yeah. You can still interpret it as him meaning win, but it's a weird, unnecessary nod to this being a scripted show rather than a legitimate fight. He talks about, you know, can Garrett Show be professional, I think is the line he says. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that, again, you can kind of take that as there'd be standards in a normal match yeah. type of thing. But still, yeah, it's... It's, it's on the edge. Yeah. The whole thing closes out with a few fans predicting their choice of winner in the Nash-Steiner-Goldberg match, concluding with an absolutely terrifying Scott Steiner fan screaming at the camera like a maniac. Yes. Calm down, dude. <laughs> Well, him and Scott clearly use the same stuff. <laughs> I would say so, yeah. Just imitating his hero, I guess. I guess so, yeah. Host Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show as we get shots of copious pyrotechnics in front of the shockingly basic stage design. It's just a simple metal structure for the big screen, backed by a plain white backdrop that they occasionally bother to color with lights. It looks awful. I mean, they could have put like a little elevator thing, for instance, New Blood Rising and all that. Yeah, yeah. Or like, you know, blood patterns or something along that line. Yeah, they could have at least done like a black and red, you know, sort of blood pattern for the curtain. It's going to sit there all day, at least have something on it. Yeah. (laughs) Last series, we talked about them taking a few years to get the good set design for Road Wild. Yeah. But even their first set design was at least a set. That's true, yes. This is just, eh, let's just hang a big bed sheet up behind a TV. That'll do. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. By the way, uh, we should not fail to mention that this show is called New Blood Rising. Yes. And the New Blood Faction, uh-huh. if I recall correctly, concluded one to two months before this. Yeah. Slamboree, I know, is the is the big New Blood versus Millionaires Club right. show. And then uh, I believe there's still some stuff at Bash at the Beach, right? Right. But at this point, there's basically no talk of the New Blood anymore. Correct. They've just kind of made it uh, the new generation kind of thing. Yeah. Not a faction. Correct, yeah. Due to a very complicated story we'll cover when we cover Bash's Beach 2000, Hulk Hogan, the like centerpiece or figurehead, whatever term you want to use, for the whole Millionaire's Club aspect is not around at all. And we'll never be back again in WCW. So they picked that point. Like, well, the main guy we're feuding with is gone and we can't talk about him anymore for legal reasons. So I guess it's to stop doing this. Yeah, I think there's one mention on this show by Conan, I think, of Millionaire's Club. Yeah. And... I think there's one mention of New Blood on this show when they're not saying the title, but it doesn't really come in context of a competition or factions or things anymore. Like I said, it's a a new generation thing they're trying to say. Just a bizarre timing for using this title for the show. Like, do a couple shows ago and you'd be okay, but this one, yeah, not so much. Especially how you went to the main event and how how that represents the New Blood, like as part of New Blood Rising. And you have Booker T, who's been in the company for eight years now. Yes. And... Jeff Jarrett, who, mind you, has not been in the company that long. This time. <laughs> yeah, because he keeps leaving and coming back. 
But again, is a wrestler that's been active since the 1980s. We saw him on our AWA Super Clash 3 review. Yeah, is it 86, I think that was? 87? Uh, 86 or 87, yeah. It's around. It is, anyways, it's past 1990. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It's like when they first started the New Blood faction. And, and who's there? Scott Steiner. <laughs> right, yeah, and Buff Bagwell. Yes, yeah. Right. <laughs> what does the word new mean to you? Yeah. Maybe they all got transfusions, and that's what they're oh. talking about. Tony introduces his co-host, Scott Hudson, and <sighs> Mark Madden. I really do like that whole response. That should be how his name is said every time he goes anywhere. I have a guy I work with. He's into old school wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually knew Hulk Hogan and the whole thing. He's a really interesting guy. He was talking about how he listened to the original version of Ric Flair's podcast. It's changed since what he was talking about. But the original co-host was Mark Madden. Oh my gosh. And he's saying, you know, he hated, he loves listening to Flair's stories, but Mark Madden's constantly interjecting and talking over Ric Flair. I'm like, he's like, you know, why am I listening to Ric Flair podcast? Listen to Mark Madden. Oh, God. Apparently he's not doing it anymore. It's someone else. But yeah, apparently that was not a good combination. I can't imagine that working too well. Yeah. No. So our first match is three count Evan Courageous, Shannon Moore, and Shane Helms with Tank Abbott versus the Young Dragons. Kaz Hayashi, Young Yang, and Jamie-san in a ladder match for three counts gold record and recording contract. The referee for this match is Jamie Tucker. So, fake boy band Three Count has been feuding with the Dragon for a bit now, constantly bragging about their so-called record deal. They, I don't think they ever say, I've listened to a bunch of shows, I haven't heard them say what company they're signed by, which is kind of an important detail here. Uh, Power Plant Records, probably. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to get Death Row Records, but that's just me. But yeah, it, it's weird. The whole part of the story is we have a record contract. We sold, we have a gold record. I'm like, from whom? <laughs> I, would, I would love to see anything where they talk about that. Maybe it's the same company that produced uh, Jeff Jarrett's albums back in the WWF. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That supposedly sold boatloads. Yeah. I think they represent Elias now with his record. <laughs> they they, they keep, you gotta keep busy, you know? So eventually, the trio is badgered into putting their record contract on the line, as well as a gold record that they apparently have for sales. And if you want the actual numbers what they sold, they don't have them. I mean, why not, I guess? Might as well have a ladder match for a record contract. Yeah, and the, and the rules for this are somewhat confusing, right? Like, yes. we have two items above the ring. How do you actually win this match? Presumably getting both of them. So if one team gets one of them, and the other team gets the other... Is it a draw, or do they then, like, do a tiebreaker, put another item up there? Jamie's mask, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Well, don't ruin the illusion, Bob. (laughs) They probably, like, the Black Scorpion wears another one underneath it. Oh, okay, okay. Well, if they don't settle it, it's going to be a Tank Abbott on a pole match, so... Ooh. Let's be glad they they hopefully get this sorted out properly. The commentators mostly ignore Three Count's entrance to instead talk about the Nash-Steiner-Goldberg match and the, quote, shoot interviews that have built to it. Sigh. For those who may not be aware, a shoot in wrestling terminology is something that is legitimate. Yeah, you're straight shooting, basically. Yeah, rather than an act. Yeah. So they're claiming that, oh, now these interviews are, are real, as opposed to other things which I guess are faked. Yes. Which, yes, we know that, but don't say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for key clarification on stuff that will be important later in the show, there's shoot, again, like I said, it's being direct and honest, like, use, like, your real first name if you don't use your real first name in wrestling. And then there's kayfabe, which is the so-called internal reality of wrestling. 
So like if you're interviewing Jeff Jarrett and shoot, he might talk about, you know, being upset about upper management or some nonsense that you don't care about. Whereas a kayfabe interview Jeff Jarrett is, I'm so mad I want to win the title from Booker T. Right, yeah. It's a very clear line that hopefully they keep intact. Oh, yeah, definitely. Tank energetically introduces Three Count and sings along with their theme song as they dance. He's quite a fan, which makes it doubly strange that he has cut two of their portraits out of his Three Count t-shirt to instead reveal his nipples. I don't know about you, Al, but if someone cut my picture out of a t-shirt so that their nipples could poke through, I don't think I would take that very well. Yeah, that's like something out of seven, isn't it? <laughs> you just find like one of your t-shirts and the, their faces are cut out of it. It's pretty disturbing, actually. Yeah. yeah. It's like finding a photo album where they use a knife and scratch the eyes off pictures. <laughs> to be like that. Oh, God. Now I'm just picturing somebody like having a, a, one of the shirts where it's just one big picture of a guy. But yeah, they've chopped the eyes out for that this way. <laughs> oh, that would be so disturbing. Why did you give me that mental image? The Young Dragons theme interrupts the music, angering Tank. As they enter, Tony explains that Three Count's gold record for Do the Three Count is hanging above the ring, as is a recording contract. He says Three Count want the gold record back, and the Dragons want the recording contract so that Three Count can't record. One, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you could just have another one of those printed up, and two, the way Tony describes this makes it sound like whichever team gets its chosen item first wins, which is not how this plays out. Yes. I will say there's a show earlier this year where they fight over someone's contract. And because the person that wins it destroys it, apparently that is now null and void. Okay. That's just contract law in WCW, I guess. I guess so. I guess so. It's not like printers exist and computer save files or anything, right? Yes. I do have one other issue. The song is Do the Three Count. Yes. Shouldn't it be Get the Three Count? Well, you know, possibly. <laughs> oh, sorry. That makes too much sense. So do, do is, a, is a correct way to say that, don't try and inject your logic into WCWL. I, I'm, I'm so has no place here. Yes. Hudson calls Tank a Mark for three count. Next to a guy literally named Mark. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Better settle in and accept the insider lingo tonight, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie and Helms start us off, as apparently we have actual tag rules in this. For now. They rapidly counter-wrestle until Helms knocks Jamie down with a back elbow and sprints for the ladders chased by basically everyone else. They fight over the ladders, and Yang hurls Moore into a barricade so hard that Yang goes butt over tea kettle. Yeah. One of the funniest spots I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah. He did, yeah. He's going for that, like, the throwing him really hard Irish whip thing, so you, like, throw and they basically do a jumping back bump. Yeah. But yeah, he takes way more of a bump than the guy through the railing. Yes, yes, very much so. Yang snags a ladder and takes it to the ring, and Moore attacks, but Yang back body drops him legs first into the ladder. Ow. Yeah. The remaining fighters join as the tag rules are already out the window. Yes. Helms powerbombs Jamie, and Moore hits a rotating splash, going for a pin, but quickly letting go since there's no pinfalls. Three count get all three young dragons on the ladder propped across the ropes. Then Courageous boosts Moore up to splash all three of them. Mostly. Yeah, I mean... Would it, would it even hurt you in the middle at all? I don't think so. I, I, I mean, I, it would be a lot of body weight pushing down on you. You wouldn't feel the like impact, but it'd be the pressure, I guess. Right. I get the idea. They're on the ladder. So that's like a flat-ish surface. Yeah. But it's in the corner and it's balancing on the ropes, which have give. Yeah, true, true. So it's not like taking a flat bump on something on, like, say, the canvas, which is yeah. much less give. Yeah, that, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, and, you know, probably didn't hurt at all. Yeah. <laughs> 
Felt like, you know, a fluffy pillow landing on you. Yeah, yeah. Ladder stunts continue as people try to climb and get taken down. Notable spots include double springboard clotheslines to Helms and Hayashi by Jamie and Moore, a dangerous-looking neck drop by Moore to Yang, Helms super-kicking Yang down as he runs with the ladder and then double-leg-dropping him with Moore, Yang backflipping off a ladder, dodging a clothesline, and perfectly timing a jumping spin kick to Helms as Hayashi does one to Moore. Mm-hmm. That was great timing there. Oh, yeah. Courageous power-slamming Hayashi onto a ladder, and more catapulting a ladder into Jamie's face as Helms holds him. The camera mostly misses a Yang moonsault to the outside. Courageous and Helms set up ladders in the corners for no other reason than that Yang and Hayashi will eventually hit splashes off the top of them two more. <laughs> Seriously, what else were those ladders going to be good for in the corners? Yeah, yeah, fair. Jamie climbs and gets the record, but Helms and Courageous dropkick his ladder over and Tank catches the record. Hudson notes that Jamie didn't touch the canvas with the record in his hands, which seems to suggest that three count get credit for the retrieval. The match continues. Yang and Hayashi knock Tank down with a ladder and knock Helms and Courageous around with it, then place Courageous inside it, and the dragons have fun closing him in it repeatedly until Jamie leg drops him. As Hayashi and Yang climb for the contract, Hudson claims that this will give them a clean sweep since they got the record too. Uh, despite being the one that suggested that they hadn't gotten credit for the record retrieval. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice job, Scott. Helms and Moore give chase, and Moore nicely transfers ladder to ladder, just in time for Helms to knock his original ladder over with Hayashi still on it. That was kind of cool. Oh, yeah, yeah the crossover. Yeah. Again, very nice timing on that spot. Mm-hmm. Moore knocks Yang off his ladder, but Jamie sloppily power bombs more down. He comes kind of, kind of sideways. Yeah, the angle of that looks pretty rough. Helms and Hayashi climb separate ladders, but Tank suddenly enters and shoves both ladders down. Yep. Including the one with his buddy Helms on it. Yes. The commentators are as mystified by that as I am. No bother, as Courageous just sets up a ladder and climbs, retrieving the contract for the win. <laughs> I think that was probably a flub on Tank's part there. He was probably just supposed to push one ladder down, but just autopilot did it for both. Right. But they covered easily enough, just having Courageous doing it instead of Helms. Right, yeah. Courageous hands the contract to Tank, and he celebrates and exits without even looking at them. The three look somewhat confused, but just shrug it off and dance a bit in the ring. Thoughts on this one? It was pretty fun. Um, It's a big old spot fest, obviously. I will say with these kind of matches with six people, as we we see around this time in WWF, work pretty well. Because you can have, say, two people do a big spot, and you have four people still active. So you're able to cycle things through. Mm-hmm. They kind of forgot, because for a while they started doing singles ladder matches. And I think they realized that when you have two people in a ladder match, the pacing is way off, because if you bolt a big move, you gotta, hopefully you have to both sell it. At least this format allows sort of constant rotation through. Mm-hmm. And in this one, they do a little bit better job than usual, too, of having people busy setting up a spot while other action is going on. Yes. There's only, I think, one point in the match where I actually noticed like a bit of slowdown while everyone was down and other people were setting up a spot. Mm -hmm. A lot of the multi-man matches that I've seen, even with multiple competitors, you'll have some notable pauses. Yeah. They're like, they're just setting up ladders now in these weird configurations. And yeah, they didn't do any of the weird configuration stuff in this. So. It's like more recently when they started doing ladders across like the ring apron so they right. could do drop through them. And you're like, what is that going to help you do at any point other than be powerbombed through it five minutes from now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I will say for as good as the timing on a lot of stuff is, 
There's some stuff that's just like slightly off. Like when they did the double clothesline bit, I assume they were going to throw it at the same time, but they're like five seconds off. Yeah, together. yeah. Which on one hand, it lets you at least briefly see both spots separately. But yeah, it seems like those mirror image spot is supposed to be done yeah, as a mirror image, not just slightly out of sync. It almost feels like after one of the clotheslines is done, they could probably get up and stop the other guy from doing yeah. it to their partner, you know? And there's, yeah, there's a few botches here and there, like the bit with poor Shannon Moore where he's thrown in, at the ladder and mostly it's his legs. Yes. Not quite the right distance, I think, was all. Yeah. Well, I think he's just like slightly off the angle, too. He's trying to like his whole body on and somehow they're just off a little bit. The other one is the um, leg drop you mentioned with Jamie. Because I think part of it is the camera angle. It's just like, it's the worst camera angle they have for it. The camera is behind him. So basically you see him jump and land on the ground and sell. You can't really tell that he hit the guy. Yeah. No, at all. So it's like, did that work like it's supposed to? Yeah. <laughs> a little confusing. Ultimately, though, for me, as enjoyable as this is as a spot fest of people being thrown around and splashing, and he's doing really cool, impressive moves as a whole. There's never, like, a singular story throughout it. Yeah. They hint at it, like, you know, Evan Kratos is apparently legit working with the injured ankle in a ladder match, which they, they sell, they mention it a bunch of times, but that never pays off. And, like, he gets really close, but he can't do it because his ankle's hurt. So it's missing one little extra thing, I think, that would really sell it as a full story. Yeah, it's... It's a lot of cool spots, but there's not like a connecting narrative other than we all want the things that are hanging exactly. up there. Yeah. And of course, the ending is a bit botched because Tank decided to shove both of them over. <laughs> oh, and uh, what a fun game when watching this match. Take a shot every time Tank is bumped by somebody and completely no sells it because he has this habit of sort of standing on the apron and he'll turn his back to like the crowd and like yell at them or someone will bump into him like running the rope and he'll be like, huh, that's weird. <laughs> At least he is, you know, a really big guy, so you can kind of, yeah. This kept a, a faster pace than a lot of the multi-man ladder matches of the era. There are a few spots where people set up ladders in clearly unnecessary ways just to hit a spot, or sometimes so the other team can hit a spot, but much of the time, the placements make good sense as things that could actually win them the match Right. Yeah. in this one. The spots are creative, and there's some genuine highlights there with particularly good timing, like Yang's excellent backflip-duck-spin-kick combo. Mm-hmm. It's just a little confusing how you win the thing. Like I said, what happens if different teams get the record and the contract? And do you actually have to hit the map before you've won one of the prizes or not? Jamie doesn't get credit for the record because he didn't hit the map, but then Courageous immediately wins the match as soon as he has the contract in his hands. Yeah. Those minor complaints aside, I thought this was a good energetic opener. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good highlight for the so-called new blood they have here. Yeah, I just wish they had slightly more detail here to really sell overall story. But it's, it's, it's good opener for sure. Yeah. Interestingly, on the very next Nitro, due to something I'll cover later on in this episode, Tank Abbott appears with Vince Russo, and suddenly he's super bad at Tank Abbott. <laughs> and he's like, you know, mess with me if it's a tank, and he's standing there like, uh, I watched you yesterday. Dancing like an idiot. Yeah, with, with your nipples out from this t-shirt. Because there's this weird disconnect in the show's own reality. Because, yeah, this big dancing idiot on Sunday, on Monday, Sunday, you can't mess with me. Rawr. Scary. Yeah. It quite make a lot of sense. <laughs> they would also briefly start this whole story where Tank seemed to think that he had won everything, which is the kind of you get the from the end where he walks off. Yeah. It would lead to three count turning on Tank Abbott, but it wouldn't really go anywhere because he would leave the company within like a month, maybe a month and a half after the show. So sadly, there's no three-count with the Tank Abbott match for you to enjoy, Bob. <laughs> I, 
I got to say, that actually would maybe be a little bit interesting. Mm. Like, there are three agile guys, and he's a big beefy dude. So I could see that being an interesting Clash of Styles kind of match, if you did it right. Yeah, in theory. I don't know if Tank Abbott is the vehicle for something like that, but you you picture like that same idea with um, uh, Ray Trailer. Mm-hmm. I could see him taking that match concept of one big guy versus three smaller guys and making a cool match out of it. I think, if I remember the timing runs right, I believe Uncensored 2000 has a match just like that. Okay. It's, um, what's his name? It's the blonde guy from Nasty Boys. I thought you meant a match I actually would want to watch. I'm just saying, <laughs> I would say they actually do a three-count versus one bigger guy. It's just, again, WCW can't quite get the, an idea correctly. <laughs> Oi. Okay. Backstage, the filthy animals are in Commissioner Ernest the Cat Miller's office, messing with all his stuff. He walks in and is displeased, but Mysterio explains that they can guarantee him a win in his match against the Great Muda, and they're going to return the tag belts that I guess they stole. They did, yes. If he'll let them ref the tag title match and give them a shot against the winners on the next Nitro. Disco gives us the first of a simply unnecessary amount of got it like that lines tonight. Yes. Get ready to hear a lot of that phrase. Mm-hmm. Cat thinks about it and says that he doesn't need their help, but he'll accept anyway. He fist bumps all of them except Disco, who he tells to get out of his office. <laughs> right on, Cat. Right on. <laughs> he nearly made MVP for you right there, right? <laughs> yeah. And at least leading to the fact that Squinferno is not hip. So whether you really find the filthy animals and they're obviously very dated aspects of this gimmick, hip or not, they at least are aware that Disco is not like them. So I'm glad they didn't think he was. I will actually say this show, I think, is actually the most I've enjoyed Disco Inferno mm. because of that. Because they're leaning into the fact that he's, he's pretending to be cool, but he's not. Right. They lean into that enough that I think it makes him actually kind of fun on this one. The fact that he didn't have a match also helps as well. That, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our second match is The Great Muda versus Ernest the Cat Miller. The referee for this one is Mickey J. So a little while earlier, we had a tournament for the WCW United States Championship because, you know, they love tournaments for vacant titles in this company. Just to be clear, is this a separate tournament than the tournaments that were taking place at Spring Stampede? Yes. So since Spring Stampede, which was an all-tournament show, they have done another tournament. Yes. This company. <laughs> yeah. It, it's how they got the title off of Scott Steiner. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and stripped the title, then had a tournament for it. And just, in case you're not following these in order, Spring Stampede was in April, and this is in August. Yeah. So, yes, just to clarify, this is at the very least second tournament this year I, I have record of for the same title. Wow. So, anyways, as part of that tournament, Muda and Piero actually fought each other. So, it seemed like, based on when they acted, they were at odds. So, at one point, they ended up in a match where the Cats also involved, and they aligned themselves together, and they attacked Ernest Miller. Oh, okay. So that's how they sort of start this whole Vampire Muda Dark Carnival thing. Miller does not like, you know, being betrayed and double teamed. That's what sets this whole thing in motion where they're just generally creating chaos backstage because that's kind of the theme of all these shows is there's always chaos backstage, there's always fighting and all sorts of fun stuff back there. Muda comes out in a black and gray kind of hooded ninja outfit and generic Asian person music. Cat comes out to his usual James Brown ripoff MIDI music. Yes. Cat gets a mic. He says, Muda doesn't understand English, so he'll break it down so Muda can understand it. He's the great Muda, but Cat will kick his great ass. 
if he if he doesn't understand English, you speaking English is not going to break it down. Right, no, I wouldn't at all. Cat slugs Muda with the mic. DQ? No. Cat gets some early strikes, but Muda fires back and hits the power drive elbow. Still looks great. It does, yeah. And several arm holds. Tony criticizes the line, the marquee says wrestling as a lame cliche and claims it actually says try to win. So we're world championship try to win now? Yeah. WCTTW? Yeah. I don't think that quite rolls off the tongue very well. No, it is not. Muda and Cat trade off with various punches and kicks. Tigress, or Tiger Us, per Tony, <laughs> of the filthy animals, comes down the ramp. Cat dodges Muda's handspring elbow and jumping spin kick and sidekicks Muda out of the ring, throws him into the barricade, and lands another sidekick before rolling him back in for two. Cat lands a split legged uppercut, but Muda hits a dragon screw leg whip and puts on an ankle lock, but Cat gets the ropes. Cat dodges the top rope moonsault, but Muda sprays green mist in his face. DQ? No. But Jay is kind enough to try to clean Cat's face with his shirt. While he's distracted, Tigress hits Muda with a top rope chair shot that gets two for Cat. Cat blocks Muda's strikes, lands kicks, and finishes with the feliner spin kick for the three count and the win. Tigress nods in satisfaction as Tony notes that he's not sure how much of a difference her chair shot actually made, but claims the filthy animals held up their end of the bargain. I mean, Cat did win, but not directly because of them. Cat seems pleased and dances. Madden says horrible things about Tigress. Tony admonishes him a bit. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? I don't know. I wouldn't let as big a fan this as I thought I might be. We talked about before on other shows, Ernest Miller with someone with a lot of wrestling ability as well as experience with martial arts would be a good combo. Mm-hmm. Because you could sort of fill in deficits he has of holds and, you know, the structure of a match necessarily. But you also, you need someone that has the speed and experience to sell the kicks right and do kicks and, you know, do all the stuff that you didn't get. Like, we talked about with Glacier. Glacier fighting Ray Trailer doesn't make a lot of sense. You get other people for that. With that in mind, I don't know. I thought the pacing kind of odd here. Hmm. I don't think it's a bad match, but it was weird combination because they'd be like a slow armor like hold, like Muda does both of those. And then suddenly like a real fast kick. So it's this weird asleep awake sort of thing, if that makes any sense. Okay. I don't know. I'm still disappointed, to be honest with you. I did, didn't hate it, but I will say the interference to Tigress is um, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So she jumps off the top rope, holding the chair like long ways, closed in. She makes so little contact, it makes no noise. <laughs> And this is a show full of chair shots, and we know what a chair shot that sounds like, or a chair to the back, or other objects sounds like. So when someone drops a chair to somebody, and there's zero sound, I'm like, what happened, exactly? <laughs> and as you mentioned, it's weird that her interference isn't the end of the match. Right, yeah. The entire idea of the bargain that he supposedly had with the filthy animals, we can guarantee your win. Yeah. And instead, they fail to get the win for him, and he does it himself. Yeah. You could maybe argue, yeah, she probably knocked Muda a little bit loopy with that chair shot, and that made him slower for Cat's moves, but mm-hmm. it's still a little bit odd that they really haven't been responsible for the finish of the match. Cat is himself. I think I joked when we were watching it that maybe that was the finish, but that chair shot was so, just so bad. He's like, I'm not, I'm not going out of this. <laughs> yeah, kick, kick me again. Makes it better. Yeah, I could I don't that. think that's actually true, but that's, that's in my head canon for that. <laughs> 
I think I lean ever so slightly the opposite direction. I, I think I, I I felt better about this match. It's it's not a great match. Okay. I felt it was pretty good. Yeah. Right. I'm probably grading a bit on a curve because the last cat match that we saw was Cat versus Bagwell from Road Wild 1999, and that was absolutely awful. Oh, compared to that one, yes, it's a lot better. Yeah. But honestly, Cat in this match just does more. Oh, yeah. He blends wrestling and karate into a more cohesive style and shows much more variety. So I feel like this is the, the matured cat style. Sure. No, I get Which that. works well. Mm-hmm. Muda, of course, was still Muda. He's still capable of some of the best strikes in pro wrestling and a dynamic and interesting performer. I wasn't fond of the lack of DQ rules, and as even the commentators note, and as we discussed at length, Tigris does not really guarantee a win for Cat so much as kind of help a little bit. But still, I thought this had some good back and forth, and it was a fun enough watch. It did a lot to build up Cat, too, with him beating a legendary performer like Muda. I think it does a lot of good for him. Mm-hmm. It would have been a nice touch to your point. So the Cat's the commissioner of WCW. If you're going to do the spot where he's missed it and with the referee, do a thing where he audibly says to the ref, no, don't DQ him. Yeah, yeah. Because he, he thinks he can win. Yeah, I've seen it noted places that like everything on this show is is technically conducted under no DQ rules, but I could not find a single spot anywhere where someone actually says that yeah no well there's and there's like there's a point in the last match where they talk about you have to break the hole before this count or you get dq'd yeah and like actively calling for the ref to dq somebody so that's true that's true yeah backstage buff bagwell is looking for his mother judy but can't find her tony reminds us that later in the broadcast we'll see the judy bagwell on a pole match our third match is Positively Chris Canyon versus Buff Bagwell in a Judy Bagwell on a pole match for Judy Bagwell's managerial services. The referee for this match is Slick Johnson. So later in the broadcast apparently means right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess it's not incorrect, but it's definitely misleading. <laughs> yes, a little bit. <laughs> so at this point, Canyon's quite pleased with himself because him as well as the other New Blood faction members really disheartened and embarrassed DDP. Right now, DDP is temporarily out of the company. He's sort of selling how upset he is with everything that went on. So at this point, Cannon is really leaning into his I'm ripping off DDP thing. And thankfully, between the night I started watching to build up the show and this show, he's gone from a blonde wig over his hair to just dyeing his hair blonde. <laughs> Which probably should have been the first thing you did. <laughs> no, it didn't occur to him for a while. Maybe they thought it was funnier, like his wig might come loose. Yeah. But otherwise, it's really dumb. So as part of this, he would decide that he needed to get his own Kimberly. So I get that, in the sense that DP's famous for being with Kimberly. But we're also coming off the story where Kimberly betrayed him. That's true. As his ex-wife, it cost him all his money. Yeah, you can just like, I, I, uh, man, you know what? To complete my DDP impersonation, I need a lady who will betray me and punch me in the balls. Yeah. <laughs> whatever, whatever vote your boat can, I guess. Yeah. Not the best at planning, let's put it that way. No. For some reason, they decided to really lean into the comedy aspects of this and bring a lot of people in wrestling you would not think actually being in the wrestling ring. Yeah. He's booked in a mixed tag against Buff and his mother. <sighs> so he abruptly comes into the locker room where Shane Douglas and Tori Wilson is talking, and he says, oh, we're, we're, you know, we're booked for a, ma- a tag match, me and you, for Tori. But she doesn't want to go, so he leaves upset, and he grabs Pamela Paulshock, the backstage announcer lady. <laughs> Drags her out, and now she's his partner, apparently. Okay. And so when it doesn't go his way, he's threatening her. So she's in peril. Who is the one person that would run to her rescue, Bob? Judy Bagwell. No, she's already out there. Oh, okay. 
If you guessed Gene Okerlund, you would be correct. Oh, okay. That explains some of the references later in the show. So earlier, Gene Okerlund was attacked by Canyon, given the cannon cutter. But yeah, so Gene Okerlund runs in and gives the ball shot to Chris Canyon. <laughs> oh my gosh. So this sets up a tag match on Thunder, which Canyon challenges Buff and Gene, who are doing an interview together backstage, to another tag match. And he has a mystery partner, Mark Madden. Oh, go. Yes. This company not only books Mark Madden in a tag match with Canyon, he also booked him in a singles hardcore match, in air quotes, against Gene Erkeland. Al? Yes. I, I think I have rarely been more glad that you are the one that covers <laughs> the TV episodes. Because <laughs> that sounds absolutely awful. It is, yes. Oh. Gene Erkeland officially has four matches in his career. One I'm actually familiar with, one was done in the early 80s. Yeah, right. I remember seeing like the training videos for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's his only that's his only match until that tag match. Wow. And then his singles match again. So it's 84, I believe that match is. And then two matches of then a week in 2000. And his final match is not really even a match. They do an angle on SmackDown in 2012, where he's booked as Sheamus's partner. Got but of course, he doesn't really wrestle. But yeah, so those are his four matches, two of which are against Mark Madden. Wow. That's a storied feud in wrestling history right there. Yes. Instantly, so I watched all of the shows. I couldn't find any reference to explain why is Judy Bagwell on a pole. I looked, believe me. Of all the things I was trying to find, the story is how they got to this point. Oh. I could find nothing. Okay. The closest they could find was Buff Bagwell agreeing to the match. But no one's saying why this was Yeah, happening. no. I couldn't, I couldn't see Caden say, you know, I want this match because something, something, whatever. Wow. Yeah. I got nothing on that. Okay. Man. <laughs> My sympathies, man. Mm-hmm. Canyon uses DDP's theme music and dresses as much like DDP as he possibly can. Canyon drives Judy Bagwell out, tied to a forklift, as the commentary team makes a ludicrous amount of fat jokes. Yes. Canyon lifts Judy high up with the forklift because she is fat, you see. She's not very, really. She's skinnier than Mark Madden. That's true. Yeah. Canyon gets a microphone and asks who's better than Canyon. He knows that this was supposed to be Judy Bagwell on a pole, but he searched second-rate Canada and couldn't find a pole big enough. Someone holds up a Canadian flag with a marijuana leaf on it. (laughs) Canyon dubs this a Judy Bagwell on a forklift match. So, our third match is Positively Chris Canyon versus Buff Bagwell in a Judy Bagwell on a forklift match for Judy Bagwell's managerial services. Our referee for this match is Slick Johnson. Buff Bagwell's music hits, and he charges down and tries to lower Judy down, but Canyon attacks. Buff flings Canyon outside and throws him into things as they fight in the crowd. Madden makes simply horrible comments about Judy. He does, yes. Back in the ring, Canyon slugs Buff in the crotch and hits a middle-rope Russian leg sweep for two. Madden claims Judy's going to jump off the forklift, but Tony, sounding very tired, reminds him that she's tied to the forklift. This is a note. This is the third match of an 11-match show. Yes. Yes, it's for reference. He's already exhausted with this man. Yes. Canyon retrieves wire cutters and removes a turnbuckle pad. He did, a, did that very quickly. I've seen a lot of yeah. people struggle with that, but he just got it off. Yeah, he was really good at that. Buff evades exposed turnbuckle rams, but Canyon whips him hard to the mat for two and slaps on the Cobra, sorry, Canyon clutch. Buff keeps his arm up on the third check. 
Canyon gets two with a swinging neckbreaker, but Buff smacks him into the exposed turnbuckle, then drops him on it for two. Canyon Cutter gets two. Suddenly, DDP's music hits, but David Arquette comes out, wearing a bizarre outfit. Yes. White boots, sparkly red pants, black sweater with a red skull and crossbones, and his hair is now spiky and red. Uh Uh-huh. Is he cosplaying as Disco Pirate Seamus? (laughs) It's a shameful thing, Bob. (laughs) So, Arquette is in town because he's doing a movie called Sea Spot Run. (laughs) The premise is that there is a dog that works at the FBI. They use, like, search for drugs and other paraphernalia. It attacks a mob boss played by Paul Sorvino. Okay. Really could do better, I think, at this point. Um, As part of the attack, he injures a uh, lower part of Paul Sorvino's body. Are you supposed to have two of? Yeah. Turns <laughs> out how to say that in my notes. So now Serena wants revenge on the dog, as you do. I, I, I think I would probably want revenge in that case, too, yeah. yes. So the dog ends up running afoul of a mail carrier, played by David Arquette, who, of course, hates dogs because he's a mail carrier. Right. He befriends the dog, and they, they're happy, and eventually he take down Servino and save the day, and the dog you know, adopts him. It's all really sweet. We've made $43 million. Wow. Okay. In 2001, I don't know what the exchange rate on that is, but that's pretty good for C-spot run. Yeah, yeah, okay. Wow. Yeah. Arquette accidentally distracts Canyon, so Buff goes for the Buff blockbuster, but Arquette hits him with a construction helmet? Yeah, that plastic helmet is pretty, pretty stiff. What? Oh, it gets too. To be clear, that was the helmet that Kanan was wearing right in the forklift. Was it? Okay. I was. Yeah, yeah, I, I, oh, you're wondering where it came from? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That makes a little more sense now. Kanan's following the rules of forklift safety. He's wearing a helmet. Yeah, no, that, that's fair enough. Yeah. Kanan whips Buff at Arquette for another helmet shot, but Buff ducks and flings Arquette into the ring, then counters a double clothesline with his own and double Buff block and double. That's hard to say. And double blup. <laughs> Double bubble bubble toil and trouble. <laughs> and double buff blockbusters them for the three count and the win. Buff goes and lowers his mom down to the ground and frees her from the straps attaching her to the forklift, giving her a hug. Aww. They should have done a variant of Buff's Buff Daddy theme song and replaced it with Buff's Mommy for this angle. I was just thinking that Susie said that too, yeah. I'm not sure if that would made it better or far worse. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. Canyon and Arquette get up in the ring and raise each other's hands in victory anyway. They hug too. Aww. Canyon cut her to Arquette. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the reaction you going for. Uh, thoughts on this one? There's so many bad things on this show. And honestly, it has a whole worse than this one. So I'm trying to find positives in this show because it's easy to lose track of that kind of stuff. I think ignoring all the nonsense around the whole Buff's mom and the forklift thing and the terrible commentary about it. Yes. I think they tell a good match story. <laughs> Cannon is creative with his moves, like, as he always is. I do question doing a Russian links people off the second rope. I don't know who really gained anything in that move. Fair enough, yeah. That's a question that move in general, but making it higher elevation just raises more questions. As a whole, they tell a nice story where he's attacking Buff's neck, and they say it's his weak point. Mm-hmm. And you can see even where he's being safe with him. He has a bit where he does it's basically the Alabama slam, but into a power bomb. You can see them really bracing for it. Cannon throws him down, 
it's so impactful. Sure, it didn't feel great, but it was as safe as you can make that move be. Yeah. It was a nice way of protecting somebody while also, you know, attacking them. Canyon generally takes good care of everyone's health except his own. In the, that is in an the issue, patch. yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He really had a willingness to do these spots to impress the crowd in the moment, which maybe long-term weren't great for, unfortunately. I will say the part where Buff turns it around with throwing one of the corner did not look great. The whip into the corner, I think Kane sells it really well. He does mm-hmm. the Brett bump in the corner. But then when Buff posted to drop him head first in the turnbuckle, was he anywhere near that pad? Or the buckle, I guess? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Based on the camera, he looked like he was nowhere near it. It's not the worst thing on the show by far, but it's like, I think because he had a good bump where he actually hits it with his chest, which is a safe place to do that, trying to be safe and not really nailing the second part just stands out more to me. Yeah, yeah, true. Did anything with Arquette really go well here? His shot with the hat looks silly because it's a plastic construction hat. Yeah. Also, he hits Buff in the back. He doesn't aim for his like, back of his head or neck. And you're not going to hurt him with this thing. Might as well at least keep the story going when are attacking his neck, right? That's true, yeah. When he gets thrown over the ropes, I don't know. I've seen worse bits like that, but it was... And it looked kind of awkward the way he sort of flipped real quick over them, I think. And to be fair, he's not used to doing that, so I'm not necessarily kicking him in a normal way. Like, if Buff messed that spot up on his own, I'd be like, yeah, you know how to do the spot better. But. Right, yeah. The finish. So, for one thing, Kana had to visibly turn him and guide him to stand right in the right spot. <laughs> I missed that, actually. He leans in and talks to him, and he like, makes sure to turn them both the same way. And I don't know who's trying to blame for this. I want to lean towards Arquette, maybe. So, the blockbuster, you jump and grab the neck and you flip over, right? Right. He clearly hits that in Canyon. He doesn't even touch Arquette's head at all in that spot. <laughs> okay. Buff does a front flip, catches Canyon's neck on the rotation, and basically forearm shots Arquette in the face. <laughs> That's how it looks. He either hits him and he just falls over and he rolls. I will say he does a good, like, that fish flop sell. Yes. I'll give him credit for that, but yeah, just none of his interference really ended well for him at all for me. Which is, I think the match as a whole, again, ignoring the nonsense and the story of it, worked well. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually totally in agreement on that. Okay. The match itself was, was perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. Canyon gave the match some good notes of strategy, like you noted, working Buff's previously injured neck and building spots around that exposed turnbuckle. Yep. I liked the ending spots in concept anyway. Sure. Buff's double clothesline and the double blockbuster were, were cool ideas. Yeah. I think the execution, like you said, could have been a lot better. Mm-hmm. That said, again, we do have the non-existent DQ rules without them being stated as non-existent, and the very, very stupid angle surrounding the match with the whole forklift thing. It also feels just weird that the forklift is completely inconsequential to the actual match. Yeah. At the same time, I think anything that they could have come up with for it was going to go terribly, most likely, so... I guess I'm glad it wasn't involved. I, I could have seen them maybe, if you're going to do a spot like that, if you just use it as a higher platform, I think it'd be okay. So like if they could have a spot where Buff... Do a splash off of the tongs or... Is that what they're called? Tongs? Tines? I forget what. I, I don't remember. I haven't used a fork for a long time. <laughs> Thankfully, I don't have to work anymore, so I'm, I'm fine with that. A crossbody is an easy, safe way to do a spot like that. Yeah. If you crossbody both of them, then that's at the blockbuster, that would work. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you can ignore the angle, this was fine, but it is hard to ignore the angle. Oh, for sure, yeah. After this, Canyon would actually leave WCW for a while. He'd return in February of next year, right before the end of the company, unfortunately, to sort of reignite the whole DDP Canyon thing and sort of wrap that up eventually. Gotcha. Uh, As for Buff Bagwell, he'd be involved in a story that will unfold a bit later in the show, so I don't want to spoil that yet. Okay. 
Outside, a purple limo has pulled up, surrounded by police cars and, quote, secret service men, per Tony. Lance Storm exits the limo with his Canadian title belt. The crowd is delighted to see that. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering why the purple limo. <laughs> Was that all they had the re- at the rental place, this, this purple one? Yeah. I thought they would have leaned in heavily and they had like a white limo and just put a big decal. The maple leaf symbol, yeah. or, or at least a maple leaf red kind of. Oh, yeah. You know, one would work. But yeah, the purple is just kind of an odd touch, especially for Lance Storm. He does not seem like the party kind of guy. Maybe the last time they were in town, they booked one of those for the artist. That, see, that would make more sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then they came, when they came back th- like next year, they're like, we had a limo. Like, oh, we got the same one for you. Don't worry. <laughs> they didn't think right. about what color it was. Tony lets us know that Storm will defend the title later in the show. This time, actually later, as opposed to two seconds later. Yes. Madden grabs a fan's Canadian flag and wraps himself in it, which is just about the worst thing I can think of to do to a Canadian flag. Yeah, I think you're required to burn that thing after you do that. (laughs) Tony mentions that Goldberg was injured in a motorcycle accident in Sturgis, and they aren't sure that he'll be here for his match tonight. You can take WCW out of Sturgis, apparently, but you can't take Sturgis out of WCW. Hudson says that somehow they'll still get a number one contender tonight. Madden says that a motorcycle accident couldn't be as serious as the match. Uh... What? What? Tony, justifiably, ignores him and builds up Booker T versus Jeff Jarrett as the main event title match. Our fourth match is The Perfect Event, Sean Stasiak and Chuck Palumbo versus Sean O'Hare and Mark Jindrak versus The Misfits in Action, General Rection and Corporal Cajun, versus Chronic, Brian Adams and Brian Clark, in a four-corners match for Chronic's WCW World Tag Team Championship. The referees for this match are Disco Inferno in the ring, Rey Mysterio, Juventud Guerrera, and Tigris outside the ring as ringside enforcers. As we mentioned a bit earlier, the whole New Blood faction is mostly dissolved as a thing after Bash the Beach 2000, but... A lot of the people involved in that sort of still talk together. Two of the teams you see are from that faction. Right, right. They're the New Blood people that stuck together as a team. Notably, Stasiak and Palumbo are former champions as well between those shows you covered. The Misfits are just kind of there. There wasn't like a story like they didn't have the titles or anything. Just, I guess they needed a fourth team for this. The storyline involving the two New Blood teams and Chronic and people we'll see later interfering in this match, but MA are just also in this match. We're like, hell no, we're not doing a triangle match. We need a square, dang it. <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> During this, there's also an angle where the filthy animals keep stealing the tag belts, as mentioned earlier. They stole them on the, on the Nitro before this, I believe. Gotcha. And then as we saw earlier this evening, they uh, have been promised a title match on Nitro against the winner of this match. Correct, yes. A four corners tag match. I can't remember. Have we had one of these on the show yet? I don't think we have. I don't think so. Because I, I don't think I've ranted about these yet. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> As you know, Al, I hate this type of tag match. Yes, yes, you do. So a Four Corners tag match is a match with four teams in which only two competitors are actually legal at any one time, and anyone can tag out to anyone, even if it's not a member of their own team. Two members of the same team can even be tagged in against each other, which, depending on your interpretation of the rules, means they either can't win because whichever one got pinned, the team was being pinned, or could literally guarantee their win by just having one of them lie down for the other, because whichever one got pinned, the team was doing the pinning. Presumably it'd be a draw if one pinned the other. 
<laughs> You'd think so, but yeah. <laughs> I hate the four corners rules. They are marginally better when they're at least used for elimination matches. Yeah, that, that's better in that regard, yes. But like this, they're just confusing and irritating. Mm-hmm. Bonus points to the filthy animals for managing a neat entrance on this set by shadow dancing behind a cloth. That was cool, yeah. Minus points for Ray Ray's stupid horns. Yeah, yeah, sure. All of the animals are dressed in referee shirts, except for Conan, who joins the commentary team. Conan and Madden immediately start talking about how various people do and don't got it like that. Yes. Using the phrase five times in under a minute. Six, if you count one, has it like that variant. Yeah. There's a note in my notes here, but how many times do you say it? Oh, Gal, we both did it then. Yeah, well, let's <laughs> I'm sorry you suffered say. for that. <laughs> oh, it's good. I, I want to make sure they match up. Okay. Madden also calls Conan Carlos because we're shooting. Yeah. Tony gets the discussion refocused on actually discussing the competitors in the match, and Hudson brings up potential allegiances forming between O'Hare, Jindrak, Palumbo, and Stasiak, though the other commentators doubt they'll last through the match with the titles on the line. Tony notes that the filthy animals who have a match on Nitro against the winners can basically pick their opponents here. Disco gets a microphone, insults the crowd and the competitors, and notes that he and the other filthy animals are officials tonight, so if anyone attacks him, they'll be DQ'd, fined, and sent to Alaska to wrestle polar bears. I want to watch that show, personally. (laughs) I've got it like that, Disco says, prompting Conan and Madden to say that six more times in under 30 seconds. Yeah. Hudson asks if they can retire that line already. Adams and Palumbo start off, and Adams overpowers Palumbo and chucks him outside, where Mysterio and Hoovy beat him up. Stasiak charges Adams, and Adams beats him up too, and hits a full Nelson slam. Tags to Cajun and Jindrak, and Jindrak earns two with a nice dropkick. Conan describes Cajun as inbreeding gone wrong. Hudson rather logically asks how inbreeding can go right. Cajun soon tags Clark, and the two double-team him. Palumbo charges and lands a super kick to Clark, in that Clark probably felt a breeze as Palumbo's foot passed well to the side of his face. Yes. What was that? Conan asked for all of us. Yes. Jindrak tags O'Hare, and he shows off some impressive agility, somersaulting over Clark off the ropes and landing a jumping back spin kick for two. Clark gets a slow two count with a tilt a whirl slam. Tag direction, and Disco does not even get there to count for his spin wheel kick. O'Hare impressively catches a Rection leapfrog with ease and power bombs him. Rection is not a small dude. No, he is not. Disco forces O'Hare back on some corner punches, allowing Palumbo choking and a Tigress Bronco Buster, but when Mysterio tries one, Rection boots him in the crotch. Conan dubs that the Nutcracker Sweet. Dude, Mysterio is on your team. Show some sympathy. <laughs> Also, does that count as a ref bump? I, I guess. Yeah, technically. <laughs> Later, when Stasiak boots him into the corner, Rection does Sting's favorite spot, falling and accidentally headbutting Stasiak in the crotch. Mm-hmm. Cajun nicely sneaks in a tag during that. Super slow two counts for Cajun's splits clothesline and a Stasiak gut buster. Cajun tags Rection, who runs wild with clotheslines, but O'Hare levels him with one of his own. Palumbo goes for the pin, and Disco hesitates, but counts to even though Palumbo was not the legal man. Palumbo gets in Disco's face. Dude, he, he cheated for you there. Heels aren't always smart, Bob. Yeah. Palumbo sleeper on Rection, and Disco visibly tries to wake Rection up between checks and even shakes his arm to fake that he's still conscious. <laughs> yes. Okay, that was pretty funny. That was pretty good. That one, yeah. Palumbo tags Stasiak, who gets zero with a shoulder block as Adams breaks. 
tagged to Cajun. Rexion and Cajun get knocked outside, care of Stasiak, Stasiak care of Adams, and Adams care of Jindrak and O'Hare. Mysterio and Guerrero beat up everybody on the floor. Jindrak and O'Hare double-team Clark, and O'Hare hits a beautiful Shantam bomb. He does, yeah. It's just, oh my gosh. That guy, for, the, for his size, is just super, super agile. Oh, yeah. Rexion clotheslines O'Hare. Jindrak DDT's Rexion. Cajun DDT's Jindrak. Palumbo suplexes Cajun. And Adams and Clark set Palumbo up for high times. But suddenly, Vampiro and Buddha charge in. Palumbo rolls up a distracted Adams for two. But Clark hits the meltdown pump handle slam on Palumbo for two. Disco just flat out refuses to count three. Stasiak attacks, but Adams flings him onto Jindrak and O'Hare, and Adams and Clark hit high times on Palumbo as Lieutenant Loco, Chavo Guerrero Jr., appears, decks Disco, utterly fails to put Disco's shirt on, and counts three. Apparently, that's legal. I guess folks should just make referee stripes part of their regular ring gear, and then they could just always count pinfalls for themselves. They wear this like military getup. He could have just had a ref shirt under his military outfit. Just, yeah, take it off. Yeah. Clark fights off Jindrak and O'Hare and Dex Disco as Conan complains that Cat double-crossed them. Conan is displeased with facing Chronic. The misfits celebrate with Chronic. Okay, so the final it-like-that count from entrances to match end. I have 11. You've missed a few. Oh, did I? Yeah, okay. you want to you wanna hazard a guess on how many there actually are? Uh, do you have 15? A little bit higher than that, even. 18. Wow. <laughs> I will say I, I counted a couple that didn't say got it like that, where they use like has it like yeah, that or something sure. like that, but still. I was sitting there angrily on my computer just like counting my fingers up as I went by. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, I, I switched back to my first hand again. <laughs> that I could sign. It gets so, so agonizing. They do continue it on the rest of the show. I did not get count for the rest of the show because oh, yeah. there is no way in heck I'm watching this show again no. for that. <laughs> Uh, thoughts on this match? So, again, trying to focus on positives. I think this match does a good job of highlighting individual performers in small doses. I kind of wish they had less people in it, so you could highlight them more. Among the people that got highlighted pretty well, I thought you had O'Hare, obviously. He gets to show off his agility and strength. This is the part we talked about when watching the match. I call him Morris because I don't hate his other fake name, but when Hugh Morris comes in, he clotheslines... Two of the three uh, new boy people, but then he gets taken out by O'Hare. Right, yeah. O'Hare gets to be the one that looks good in that segment still, yeah. You can tell they they know they've got something with this guy. He has a good clothesline, too. He does that bit where he has a real stiff arm clothesline, drops to a knee, like selling the impact of it. Yeah. Because I really like the style of that. Uh, Hugh Morris, again, I don't like him personally, and I hate his terrible gimmick name, and the, you know, Mistress in Action thing. The fact that there's a person called Sergeant Awall... And I could see him. I hate all of that. Right, right, yeah. All of that. I hate the whole thing around him, but he himself at this point is really talented. He is a good in-ring performer. Yeah. He is, like, I think we've said about him before, he's never a guy that you feel like would be like a top of the card or, or focus of the show type of performer. Yeah. But he's, anytime he's in the ring, he's reliable. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Which you need people like that on the show, absolutely. Yeah. I thought even um, Kerbal Cajun, for a bunch of, again, I don't like his gimmick necessarily, he has good moments to shine here. Yes. I think in later shows, he gets, when he gets more singles action, you can see glimpses of what he could have been at some point mm-hmm. if he'd been seasoned more and gotten the opportunities. Even Jindrak, honestly, he can't quite do the same level of stuff that O'Hara can do with Shantan and his flips and everything, but 
he has that sort of natural young Randy Orton athleticism, I think. So he really shines in a little bit here. I enjoy parts of this match where they get to see, well, here's what this guy can do, here's what this I can do. But the overall structure of the match is just too much going on. Mm-hmm. So we have a four-team match. So it's eight people right there. We have four referees. Yes. That's 12 people. And then during this match, we have Muda and Vampiro interfere. So that's 14 people involved in this and match. And don't forget Lieutenant Loco. Oh, yes, it would be 15 people. Thank you. <laughs> involved in this match. That's one quarter of the field for World War Three matches. That's true. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that puts it in context there. Oh, this wow. match is half a World Rumble. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Other than the fact that they're former champions, I could see cutting um, Perfect Event, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think Stasiak does some good selling. He Character selling, I would say, more, more than regular selling. Mm-hmm. He sells, like, Fright and, you know, that kind of stuff really well. But one less team would have given a little more room to the shine. Yeah, I, I can see that. I think there's probably more than reason, but they wisely limited what Chronic does in this match. Chronic comes in, does their big power moves, gets to press somebody around, but they really let the MIA and Ginger Rackner Hair and them really do the bulk of the action, which was definitely a good call. It works for the match story, too. That Oh, yeah, no, it's fine. They're the actual champions, but because of the context of the match, they could lose by anyone pinning anyone. Yeah. So I think it's Tony mentions that at some point, like Chronic have to be worried here because they're the ones that lose the titles if somebody else gets pinned and they can't get into the match. It'd behoove them to be in the ring as much as possible. Yeah. Overall, you have a lot of talented people here, given rounding it, say 30 seconds or so, really to shine Mm -hmm. in this match with all this nonsense chicanery stuff going on with the, the referees attacking people a second, they leave the ring like it's a lumberjack match. Yeah. Blatantly interfering during the match, like with Ray and Tigris, and then the ending with Loco appearing out of nowhere, by the way. He doesn't come out with the other guys. Yeah, yeah, I have no idea where he... He just runs out, and Botch is putting his shirt on. Yeah, he he actually does slightly worse at that than Vince Russo did, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the comparison, yeah, it's a scale, yeah. We need a third person to really measure that, if you can find a match for that. Yeah, it's one of those ones, I get the idea of having less people on the show, but it's too much. Yeah, I think the action here was generally decent to good. Yeah. There was some nice intrigue with Disco's blatant slow counts, but lack of clear favoritism. It seems like the animal strategy is mostly trying to wear down all of their possible opponents, but then especially try to dodge Chronic, which made for a different bit of referee cheating from what we've seen in the past. Normally, it's like blatantly favoring one person. Right, yeah. I also liked the twin alliances that kind of developed during the match, making it almost a two-team four-on-four match rather than a four-team match. Mm Mm-hmm. That helped dampen the effect of the four corners rules a bit, since it made a little more sense than usual why they might tag someone other than their own team member. Though the fact that the match improved because the four corners rules were largely evaded kind of tells you how bad those rules are in the first place. Yeah. Between some fun with intentionally bad refereeing and some genuinely impressive moves from some performers, O'Hare in particular, this had its moments, but some sloppiness, the remnants of the four corners rules, the lack of a clear explanation why some teams decided not to care about winning anymore— and the constant repetition of it like that all over the place kept me from being able to fully enjoy this. It's not as bad as I feared, at least. Yeah, for sure. Taking this basic math structure, I would say make a triple threat so it's getting less people. Yeah. Um, and make elimination. You could tell a story of them working to try and eliminate Chronic, but then Chronic becoming that could be interesting as well. Yeah, to your point about there being too many people, just I think just make it just Disco as the ref. Yeah. 
you, you don't need the other guys attacking people on the outside or anything. Just have him be the ref, and that would trim down on the chaos factor quite a bit. I jokingly said when we watched it the first time that four refs made sense because it was four teams, but obviously that's not really how I feel. <laughs> yes, yeah. Aside from repeating it like that far too many times, Conan actually does a pretty decent job on commentary. Yeah. He does a nice job of alternating between insulting the teams that he doesn't like as a character Mm -hmm. and complimenting their wrestling. Like, he's very complimentary towards O'Hare. He is, yeah. And um, also will say things like, you know, Chronic are big, powerful guys. Yeah. He'll insult their intelligence a moment later, but but he does actually quite a nice job of doing kind of the Heenan-esque, subtly build people up even though you're insulting them. Yeah. Which I, I appreciated that about his commentary. This wish he, you know, could work on catchphrases. <laughs> yeah, one, it's the thing I got with, with commentary, with, with Madden. I've seen Scott Hudson do commentary without Mark Madden on different mm-hmm. shows. While he's still not anywhere near my top five commentators by a mile, he's so much worse with Madden than he is without Madden. Yeah. So I think that might have effect on Conan as well. Probably, yeah. There's there's a lot of back and forth between the two of them that I think uh, Conan would have been more focused on the match probably without that. Yeah. When they reference, again, I think it's them being funny and shoot and all. Yes. They reference someone in the back feeding Conan lines. I wasn't sure if it was someone in the back or if it's like supposed to be one of the filthy animals near the table says something to him or something like that. Yeah, maybe. We never, we never see it, so I have to assume it's someone in the back, but that could be that as well. Yeah. Jinder Akonahair, Palumbo, and Sasiak would coalesce in the upcoming week they would form the Natural Born Thrillers. Great name. It is, yes. Sadly led by Mike Sanders, who is uh, not, not so le- great, less yeah. thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. That way. Yeah, they, they are definitely a rare, if uneven, bright spot in Nitro and WCW in general in 2000, 2001. Yeah, I think we've said this before, but there's definite moments in WCW 2000, 2001 where you can see if the company had survived, here's people that would have become prominent. And oftentimes they're quite good. Yeah. They're just early enough in their career that they still need some, you know, as you put it, seasoning to, yeah, yeah. to reach their potential. It's not like WCW 2000, 2001 has no hope. Oh, yeah. It's just that they're making too many bad decisions for the bright spots that they have to be able to thrive. Exactly, yeah. And as far as the champions go, they have more to do tonight as well. Okay. Uh, what did you say the lady's name was again, the lady interviewer? Pamela Polshock. Okay, thank you. Because nobody says her name for the entire show. Oh, okay, yeah. So I, I had no idea who this lady was. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Pamela Polshock? Yes. Okay. Backstage, Pamela Polshock uh, is with Jeff Jarrett. Jeff Jarrett, tonight you had the opportunity to win back the title against Booker T. Now you've done everything you can to wear him out. Let's see if you can maybe finish the job. First of all, Blondie, where's Jurassic Slap Oakland? Did he send you out here to interview me because you wore his out last night? No, don't answer that. Because on second thought, just the thought of it, I might puke all over you. Now, as far as Booker T goes, I know he isn't here yet because I've been looking for his all day long. And the minute he shows up, the minute he gets here, he better have eyes in the back of his head because that title is coming back around my waist. And that's a guarantee from the chosen one, the man with all the stroke around this place. So choke on that, Barbie. I am not fond of Jarrett's slap various things promo period Mm -hmm. but this was a particularly poor example with unnecessary comments about the interviewer's sex life yes jared's comments about booker and guaranteeing victory were fine but the rest was pretty distasteful Mm -hmm. 
Oh, with yeah, with Oakland, you get the oh, the confusing geriatric slap. Oh, god, yeah. What's the immortal line? The the you're still just a geriatric slap. Slap. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like what? What are you doing, Jeff? Don't improv, Jeff. I've seen seen you in the 1980s. You were such a bright young man. Where where have you gone? <laughs> Our fifth match is the franchise Shane Douglas with Tori Wilson versus Billy Kidman in a strap match. The referee for this match is Billy Silverman. So with the ending of the whole Millionaire's New Blood Sable aspect, Kidman basically pivots back to being a face. They instantly try to pretend they have long-term storytelling because what happens is he's betrayed by Tori Wilson, who ends up with Shane Douglas. Shane in a promo says that they had planned this all the way back when the, the revolution was a thing. Okay. Which I sincerely doubt. But, you know, Shane Douglas is someone you can trust, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah, so now basically he, I guess, doesn't really regret all the stuff he did to Hogan, like, you know, trying to murder him with the White Hummer and all that. Yeah. But because he's betrayed by his girlfriend, he's a good guy now. That's always the thing, right? Like, a guy becomes a good guy, not because he's turned over a new leaf, but because he was betrayed by a worse bad guy. Yeah. It's the Randy Orton face turn. In, in yes, yeah, yeah. So, it starts the whole angle where Shane claims to be the, quote, bigger man than Kidman, which he highlights by showing allegedly a sex tape between the two of them. Basically, they just get into the covers and they just roll around. You don't see anything, obviously. Thank goodness. Broadcast standards. So, he, you know, he's braggadocious at that until Kidman plays the rest of the tape, where afterwards, apparently right after that, he apologized for not being able to perform. Yes. Wow. So, that leads to an infamous match, which surprisingly is not a pay-per-view. It was actually on Nitro, building up to this. That is the Viagra on a pole match. Oh, God. Yeah. That, I, I could have sworn that was the pay-per-view match. I'm looking everywhere. I'm like, why haven't I seen this match? So I looked up, oh, it's on Nitro. Oh, my gosh. So apparently, his response to that video package play is challenging for that match. Wow. I. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, we're in Vince Russo booking. <laughs> okay. As people joke about that match, too, is it's not great, obviously. The whole match is on grabbing a glass bottle, but only has a sticker that says Viagra on it, not even an official thing. It's like someone made an art class. You think it would at least end with someone breaking said bottle, but no. <laughs> okay. Shane wins the match and just, you know, keeps it to use later, I guess. I guess so, yeah, you know. I don't know how we got from him leaking video of Shane Douglas to a strap match necessarily it didn't come up in commentary but that's where we are just you know the natural next progression you have viagra on a pole and of course you got to go for a strap next i mean it's just logical yeah that's the one with the uh, sting vader feud right 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 yeah yeah definitely (laughs) douglas at least shows a little touch of character during his entrance this time faking fainting when wilson gives him a little kiss Kind of weird to do that with his hardcore reputation, but still, I appreciate a little bit of effort. He still can't sync up his entrance to the change in music. No, I always hate that with his. He has such a good entrance theme. Like, it's actually a really good entrance theme, a rare thing in WCW 2000. And yet, he does nothing with this thing. He just walks out in real pace, but changes from the choir, sort of orchestral, like, organ music to rock. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nothing. Hudson criticizes Madden over using Ergo like, got it like that. Yes. So Madden repeats, got it like that again. I hate this show. Mm-hmm. Douglas gets a microphone. Hey, Billy Kidman, boy, you think you've been cute, entertaining, 
lowlifes like these bunch of Canadians with sex tapes. What you've done, Billy, is you've off the franchise. It's easy to do. This woman doesn't deserve a punk like you. In fact, Billy, how many times you have to have your franchised before you realize you weren't man enough to handle Tory all night long? Didn't the franchise start this smear routine, the smear campaign? Well, we ain't too happy about being in this stinking country. So, Billy Kidman... What do you mean by smear? Fans not showing proper respect for Tory Wilson, I can tell you that. So, Billy Kidman, you wanted a strap match. I got no problem taking some skin off your To note, by the way, the... First person to play a sex tape was Shane Douglas. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, was justified when he did it. Oh, okay. I'm I'm, I, I, sorry. I keep forgetting I shouldn't be questioning Shane Douglas. Yeah. A franchisee. So, so like, yeah, can, can, I, can I get, like, my own Douglas franchise where, you know, I, I sell, I guess, Douglas burgers or something? Yeah, ugly, ugly yellow t-shirts. Yeah. Duggers, would you call it? Du- what would you call it, Shane Douglas hamburger? I wouldn't say Duggars because that reminds you of the family. Shane Burgers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could really cross over with, like, uh, McDonald's and make a Shane O'Mac. <laughs> oh, see, that's perfect, yeah. Yeah, see? Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll see what the franchise fee is. <laughs> Tony notes that this is a strap match that you win by pinfall, not the Four Corners kind. Thank goodness. Can you imagine a Four Corners tag match and a Four Corners strap match in the same okay. show? No, no, no. But <laughs> <laughs> it's going to happen now that I said it. Yeah, I think you and I both like the, the strap is just a prop better than the touch all four corners time to match it just has a better like variety of finishes like yeah people can't figure out more than one finish for that match unfortunately yeah douglas is reluctant to put the strap on but eventually agrees they use the strap to pull each other into strikes and take each other down but kidman goes out after wilson douglas goes after him but kidman beats him up outside and inside the ring and chokes him with the strap madden continues saying got it like that endlessly Wilson distracts Kidman, and Douglas takes Kidman down with the strap for some strap-assisted holds, whipping, and choking, then distracts the ref for Wilson to choke Kidman, too. Kidman comes back with a middle-rope Frankensteiner and nearly necks himself. Mm-hmm. Kidman powerbomb gets two, and he rips Douglas's shirt off to make strap-whipping hurt more. Douglas escapes up top, but Kidman flare-karmas him down and whips him in the crotch. Kidman corner bulldog for two, and Wilson accidentally hits Douglas with a shoe for two. More two counts from Douglas dropping Kidman on the ropes, a Kidman roll-up, which Wilson rolls over again for one, and Douglas's Pittsburgh plunge. But Kidman shoves Douglas into Wilson, then hits the Kid Crusher to Douglas for the three count and the win. Kid Crusher sounds like a trap in a particularly dark children's film, not a wrestling move. Yeah, it does sound like that. Kidman gets the strap off of Douglas, and Wilson gets in and goes to hit him with a chair, holding it upside down so that would probably have really, really hurt. Yes. But Kidman fortunately spots it and stares her down. Wilson drops the chair, and Kidman puts the strap onto her, then... <sighs> spanks her with the strap. Of course. Madden makes jokes about Tori previously having had weight problems. Douglas slugs Kidman down and stomps him, then wraps the strap around his neck and climbs up top, hanging Kidman with the strap as the bell incessantly rings. Big Vito charges out to save Kidman and runs Douglas and Wilson off, but Reno charges in and attacks Vito. 
Vito inverted atomic drop and mafia kick sent Reno fleeing as well, and Vito checks on Kidman. Thoughts on this? I thought it was a pretty solid match. I think what they did well is they really got the right level of intensity here. Mm-hmm. As silly as the whole fire on a pull thing and you know leaking the videos each other is, they do a good job of selling that this is a personal sort of feud. Right, yeah. They do a good job of showing that Kidman is wise to how the match worked properly. She's using the strap a lot as a weapon and initially using a well to sort of control Douglas. Yes. But once Douglas really figures that out, Douglas sort of wrestles normally, it's more reactionary. Once he figures it out, he gets more control of everything. I appreciate that this trap wasn't necessarily overused. They didn't, they didn't do like really elaborate spots with it up until the last post match thing with the choking, really. Right, yeah. It's just used in brief bits and he still wrestled around it, which I thought was nice. I think my issue with the finish as a whole is there's too much interference going on, which is obviously a regular plan I have, but it's not even just that they're having interference, it's that it happens multiple times, and in fact it fails one time for a two count, but then fails the next time for an actual pinfall. Yeah, true. We're already in a gimmick match, entering interference, and you're doubling up on that. It's a little silly. It also gets into the thing we discussed many times about how Wrestling shoes swung by hand are dangerous weapons. Yes, yeah. But I guess it's, she didn't have the pointed end, so it's not like a blinding weapon like with Hogan. <laughs> the high heel shoe probably blinded her for like three weeks on a nitro, I think. Got lucky, Douglas. Absolutely. And not a big fan of the post-match stuff where looks close to like actually legitimately hurting the guy. I think you could do a lot better. Yeah, that, that, that looked touch and go for a bit there. Generally, when they do that kind of stuff, Kidman would have his hand already there, and they wrap around his hand so he can sort of control it. Yeah, I think he does have one hand in between it, but I don't think he gets both in there. Yeah, you, he really needs both for that, yeah, so he's yeah. safer. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm in agreement. This was pretty good overall, aided by being a normal match with a strap rather than a touch-the-corner strap match. Kidman and Douglas mixed the strap in nicely with their wrestling moves and mixed a couple more creative spots in there with it, but like you said, they didn't overuse it. Yeah. Kidman used his speed and agility well in this, and Douglas looked tough and brutal. And they timed Wilson's interference spots pretty nicely, not generally letting them interfere with the match flow. Though, like you, I I agree, probably do just one of the two her interference goes wrong spots. If you can ignore the horrid angle surrounding it, the actual match was fine. Yeah. The post-match stuff, yeah, I think is maybe going a little bit too far. Plus, I don't mind Big Vito coming out to save Kidman, but then having Reno also attack there, you're just like, Hey, uh, does anyone remember the match that just happened and the people in it? No, we're totally focused on this new thing. Yeah, it's one of those Russo. Oh, something hasn't happened in thirty seconds. We got to change the change it to a totally new thing. Also, consider how quickly they both run out. Like the break level between them, break time. Yeah, are they like both at the girl position, and, like staring at each other, and then Vito just ran first, and Vito's like, wait till like, okay, now I'm gonna go fine. Reno's just standing there by the entrance getting a drink from a vending machine yeah. and sees Vito sprint by at Mach 5 and is like, oh, gotta get that guy. <laughs> he was waiting for the uh, spiral thing to come around and let the, the food drop out. He's like, come on, come on, I got it. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's why he had to wait, yeah. Or got caught in the machine, had to shake it a couple times, yeah, and then he got exactly. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this does, of course, as you can probably guess, leads to a tag match on Nitro. This has really, really sort of pushed the further part of the whole um, natural born throwers aspect because Reno's part of that. Right, right, right. They attack Vito and Kidman as part of that, sort of expanding how big the group's going to be and that kind of thing. As far as the feud with Shane Douglas and uh, Kidman, it would properly conclude at the next show 
with a scaffold match, which is a tag team scaffold match with Billy Kidman and Medusa against Tori Wilson and Shane Douglas. Okay. Interesting little factor I discovered while looking at this as well. So there's four people involved in that match. Two of them are in the WWE Hall of Fame. Neither is Kidman or Douglas. That's interesting. Yeah, Medusa and Tori Wilson are in the Hall of Fame, but Kidman and Douglas are not. Okay. I mean, I'm glad Medusa's in there. I, oh, yeah. And Tori seems like a nice person. Okay. I'd, it's not a knock on them. It's just funny that half of the match is in the Hall of Fame like that. Yeah. Uh, as for the Reno Big Vito thing, that would be, again, part of the Natural Born Thrillers stuff, which would involve a very, very busy match at Fall Brawl with them and much of the people. Meanwhile, Booker T is arriving at the arena. Tony notes that he's moving slowly due to a prior knee injury. Jeff Jarrett attacks and slams his leg in his car door, which I'm sure did wonders for that. Yeah. Our sixth match is Major Guns versus Miss Hancock in an ROTC match. The referee for this match is Charles Robinson. An ROTC match, as Tony explains, is a rip-off-the-camouflage match. The camo in question would be the camo on just about every article of clothing the girls have. Also, there's a mud pit by the side of the entrance ramp now. Ugh. Yeah. If you look at the wiki page for this show, by the way, it lists as a mud ROTC match. Yes. It is not officially called that on the show. No, no, it did not. Yeah. The whole angle is Miss Hancock is the upper classes nudie. You know, she wears the glasses and skirt and everything. She isn't like Major Gun because, you know, wears the bikini top and all that. So it comes a personal feud that way. Flair and David Flair, that is. And of course, the MIA are involved in this. What's interesting in the build to this is they book the two ladies wrestling a lot, which I don't, in theory, have an issue with, but you aren't booking women that are really well-trained to wrestle. They're, they're not very good. No. <laughs> yeah. This isn't like booking Medusa and Bull Nakano. Yes. There's tons and tons of great lady wrestlers. You and I have campaigned, I think, on the show occasionally for more women's wrestling. This is not what we intended. Correct. Yes. They book them a lot in matches, and it's stuff you wouldn't expect as well. Like, they book what's supposed to be a hardcore match between these two, the two of them. Oh, jeez. Even with the start in the back and in the ring aspect, which they occasionally remember as a hardcore rules thing. They book a tag team tables match with David Flair and Miss Hancock against Sergeant Wall, who again is present, so his name makes no sense. Yeah. And Major Guns. So the match plays out basically in two parts. If- oh, okay, okay, hold on, hold on. I think I can explain the Sergeant Wall thing. Okay, go ahead. He, he is AWOL from someplace else, okay. and that's why he's here. He is absent without leave to go to the wrestling show. Oh, okay. So he's doing this all the time and no one figures it out? Well, I mean, they figure it out, just, you know, oh. he, gets, he regularly gets punished from it and never learns his lesson. Oh. He's, uh, he's the comedy military guy from Mayberry. Gilbert Pyle? Yeah, like Gomer Pyle. He's the, he's the Gomer Pyle of the military group he belongs to. Okay. Of all the people who get a Gomer Pyle comparison, AWOL was not the one I was expecting, I'll be <laughs> honest with you. That's what I'm here for, man, to be surprising and interesting and shocking. Yes, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, so the match plays out in two parts. In the ring, uh, David Flair is getting his ass kicked by Sergeant AWOL, which is as exciting as you would expect with those two involved in a match. Oof. And on the outside, the two ladies are fighting. As a table in the ring, AWOL's about to, you know, choke slam, flare through at his thing, you know, choke slam through the table. Outside, they have a table propped up on the barricade, which I really wish you could do in games. I love that spot, but you can't yeah. do it in physics anymore. Miss Hancock, Irish whips Major Guns into it, and she hits it. It 
briefly cracks faintly in the middle. Like her whole body thrown at a table. It sort of cracks though. They oh, ring the bell. <laughs> For contrast, there's a infamous match with Cody Rhodes and Big Show. But Big Show gets dropkick and accidentally steps on the table on the outside and it breaks cleanly in half. Right. So his one foot does that, but throwing her entire body yeah, into 110 yeah. pound lady at the thing full speed. <laughs> not not even barely a scratch. Wow. I still don't know why there's a mud pit, but there was a mud pit on a previous Nitro. It was Tigris and Major Gundra fighting, and Hancock interfered in that, so that's apparently why it's carried over. But we know there's a mud pit because Vince Russo. Yes. Hancock offers a handshake. Guns slaps her. They roll around in the ring, and Hancock hits Muda's handspring elbow. Good handspring, bad elbow. Mm-hmm. Flipping pin by guns for two, as apparently there are pinfalls in this. The two rip off parts of each other's outfits. Somehow, guns removing Hancock's shorts gets a two count. Yeah. Guns lands some strikes to Hancock's midsection. Further two counts off a gun slam, Hancock top rope crossbody, and gun sunset flip. Guns dodges a running crossbody, and Hancock lands stomach first on the mat, then rolls out, selling the midsection. They fight outside, but after sending guns to the ring post, Hancock briefly collapses, again selling the midsection. The commentators note she seems to have lost all her energy. More clothes ripping, and they fight up the ramp, where Guns runs Hancock into the mud pit, sandbags, and charges, but Hancock flips her into the mud pit. Hancock laughs, but Guns pulls her into the mud. The two awkwardly wrestle around in the mud, and Hancock throws Guns into the sandbags. Hancock arrogantly dances, but then suddenly grabs her midsection and collapses. Guns pins her for the three count in the win. Hancock still appears to be in pain, and Robinson and even Guns check on her. David Flair suddenly runs in from backstage and dives into the mud pit to check on her. They all call for a doctor, and the commentators do their serious voices as medical staff take Hancock off in a stretcher. Madden knows that Hancock had doubled over near the ring, but he, quote, thought it was part of the match. And as Tony throws to an interview, Madden starts to ask if Tony's notes say anything about this, giving a pretty clear reference to the show being scripted. Yeah. Thoughts on this one? So, again, trying to keep my positive spin going here, because there's enough negative for this show. I think they really tried in the actual match part. I mean, I'm being completely honest with you. I'm not saying they're great, but I mean, they were actually attempting to wrestle a normal match with the, I don't know what level of training they had, but... They were doing their best, what they could honestly do. Okay. Again, not great. Like, I think Hancock does a little better. I think she generally has the rhythm down. To your point, her handspring elbow doesn't look great as an actual elbow, but the handspring looks good, and she's, she has a kip up, and she has see, a lot of stuff she could, she could do. She shouldn't be, at this point, on television. That's the issue. At the very least, not in a singles match. Right. Like, you can put her in a mixed tag match yeah. and have her come in, do the couple spots that she's trained really well for that moment, and then get back out and give her more experience that way. But yeah, at this point, they are not at the point where they can do a singles match. I'm saying, I, I've seen matches like this where they don't know anything, and all they do is roll around and do like that awkward yes. hair toss. That's true. So in their defense, they are trying with the spots they can do. <laughs> like, Keebler almost, she does a version of... Dustin Rhodes' miscross body roll of the ring spot. She didn't actually get out of the ring, but, you know, she tries it. Fair enough, yeah. But yeah, I mean, of the two, Hancock definitely could do more. Like, uh, Major Gunge's body slam is less of a slam. More of a pick-you-up, turn-you-over, and kind of 
drop just like go really yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that said did we really need this match no okay <laughs> so be okay beyond the way this this match is in a vacuum i have to listen to three let's say middle-aged i don't know the exact age of everyone involved three middle-aged men perving over it the entire oh my gosh yeah the commentary in this is loathsome madden is obviously in every situation the worst he starts comparing it to other famous wrestling feuds like uh, Flair and Steamboat and talks about how he didn't want to see them naked, which is apparently a question people had about that with him, I guess. I don't know why he says that repeatedly. And of course, we'll get into this, obviously, but doing a weird, super serious injury angle in this match mm-hmm. is the most bizarre tone of whiplash I think I've ever seen. It's, it's absolutely insane. Yeah. They're literally wrestling in a mud pit, then suddenly she's in serious physical pain and they're calling a doctor. Right, yeah. I, th- I think you and I joked at the time, oh no, the mud was poisonous. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I do have to also mention that the idea like you described as um, Hancock flipping guns in the mud, that was definitely not a flip. She barely rotated in, in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> and I, I don't know who's at fault. I want to say that's hers, because I've seen her do other falls and flips. I don't necessarily think it's Hancock's fault there. Obviously, she has to do some sort of elevation and helping, but it looked really bad. She took one of the sandbags into the ring because she fell on it and dragged it in. <laughs> there are actual people. I mentioned Medusa has a match next month on yeah. this company that could do stuff. There are, there are very, very talented female wrestlers that WCW has had in their company before. Yeah. You know, you look at the women's title tournament in late 96. Yeah. And you get some some amazing performers as part of that. Mm-hmm. Literally just talk to Medusa and say, hey, who would you like us to bring in for you to wrestle? Yeah. And I'm sure she could li- list like 20 names in a heartbeat that would provide a great women's wrestling match. But these these two, I'm not going to say they're hopeless. I think, like you said, they are trying. Yeah, they, they work the match that they could do. But they are not ready at this no. point to be on in a singles match, much less a singles match on pay-per-view. Agreed, yes. As a match, this was terrible. Yes. Intermixed with disrobing each other, the two did basic wrestling, though they did manage the moves that they could do moderately well. Yeah. The pace was very slow, which for something like this just makes the painful awkwardness linger. Yeah. The concept of the match about stripping each other is simply awful. Absolutely. The commentary and the crowd, both of which get very offensive, make it far worse. Mm Mm-hmm. Add in some very confusing rules that seem to imply that they could have just pinned each other instead of even bothering with the clothes ripping, and you've got a real mess of a match that is a waste of time on the show. Then there's the angle. Yeah. And I apologize, but I'm going to rant about this for a bit. Oh, yeah, it's, it's fine. I have more at it as well, I'm sure. As we'll find out later, the idea here is that Hancock was pregnant and had complications as a result of a match. The idea further is that WCW wants you to believe that the medical emergency is real, not part of the show. They want you to believe that one of their performers suffered a serious and potentially deeply traumatic medical emergency live on air and was legitimately carted off to the hospital. I believe they leave it unclear if they're saying that she actually suffered a miscarriage or just felt pain, but... Well, they, they, they just said later, but yeah. Yeah, there's at least some implications here. Imagine if the fans do believe you. Mm-hmm. What do you imagine is the result? I don't think that it would be something that would put them in the mood to watch more WCW action, that's for sure. It would cast a pall over the rest of the show. Even if the fans kept watching, 
they wouldn't be likely to really focus on the show. They'd be distracted by worry or sympathy. Sure. At least I hope they would be. Right. Best case scenario, if they believe you then, is that you get a very subdued audience for the rest of the show, sapping the show of all of its energy. So the actual best case scenario is that they don't believe you and just ignore the angle. To make things worse, in the attempt to make this feel real, the commentators and performers break character and make statements here and later that get very, very close to saying that the match was scripted, but the events that followed the match were not. Correct, yeah. I'll talk more about this later as there's a later match, shockingly enough, where they do this even more blatantly. But for now, suffice to say, this is an awful idea that risks destroying the show's internal reality. To be fair, at this point, you can kind of not quite listen and think that their comments are more like, this match was planned to occur, but the other stuff wasn't, rather than this match is meant to be totally scripted. But they get really close here, probably too close if you're paying attention. Right. And they, they go, sounds weird saying it, but they like serve a soft shoot. They refer to Sancock by her actual name. Yes, they ta- start talking about her as Stacey Keebler, yeah. I don't know if it's clear that her and Flair are like an actual couple in story at this point, but definitely they're, they're around each other a lot. Yeah. But they get them being, oh, they're actually like engaged in real life or something. They don't say it quite like that, but the implication is that he's rushing out because they have a romantic relationship going on. Gotcha. Yeah, if the best case scenario is that you hope your audience doesn't care about the angle and doesn't pay attention to what you're saying so you don't kill your show in one way or another, why are you doing the angle? Mm-hmm. And again, you're connecting... A match around women ripping their clothes off and rolling in mud with injury angle. Yeah. It's the oddest thing. Like I said, the most sudden tonal shift. Yes. And I guess, I mean, I can see like trying to do it that way just to get a bigger shock out of it, Mm -hmm. but it's just a bad idea, poorly executed. (laughs) What then you get to the timing of it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so a lot of grief gets thrown, rightfully so, at Slamboree 2000. Yes. For doing the canyon thrown off the triple decker cage spot. Right. In the same arena... And a little more than a year after the unfortunate death of Owen Hart. And fortunately, this, this whole, not quite this exact one, but the whole, this is serious now, we'll talk in our serious voices, is sometimes informally referred to as the Owen Hart voice. Right. Because with JR doing that. So doing the Owen Hart voice for this. Yeah, it's, it's really uncomfortable. Yeah. And again... Just considering that shows what a bad idea this is. Consider, again, like Over the Edge 99. Yes. That is a show where a wrestler has a legitimate traumatic accident during the performance and in that case ends up unfortunately dying. Yes. It's not regarded as a show that that people want to watch from then on. You know, it's it's not the type of show that people are like really into after that point. In fact, the WWF is heavily criticized for allowing the show to continue after that had happened on the air. Yes. That is the feeling that WSW is trying to replicate here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're trying to portray, oh my gosh, we've got a serious medical emergency in the middle of our show and we're going to let the show go on. Yeah. You're intentionally imitating the thing that got the other company dragged over the coals. Yeah. Well, so let's go back a little ways on our own show, right? We covered the NWO Attack Nitro. Right. And they sell, well, I thought that's a little long when they do that. They sell the everyone's attacked viciously in the back by the other thing very seriously. And that affects the whole show. Exactly. Intentionally. Yeah. But it says like, oh, anyways, next match. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what happened with Miss Hancock? So on the following Nitro, Major Gunn comes out and says he's really sorry about what happened. She didn't know what happened. She's waiting for notifications. 
we see David Flair in the back, and he's still covered in mud from the night before. So he's like, he hasn't even slept, apparently. Which, I'm sure he smelled great if that's really what happened. <laughs> yeah. He runs out to the ring. He's like, you know, getting her face, like, what'd you do? What'd you do? And, you know, shouting. He's playing that crazy guy he's been playing before. Hancock comes out, and they, again, they're shooting again by Ferdinand Stacy Keebler, which he will eventually just draw the Miss Hancock thing after this, thankfully. Yeah. She reveals to him that she's pregnant. This angle obviously gets a lot of understandable gripe from us and everybody involved. I think people conflate things sometimes. It happens a lot in wrestling and in real life and other things. There are wrestling games that have done what's supposed to be a legit miscarriage angle. Right. WE's done them a couple of times, and they're not good. I think people, because of the way she sells the quote-unquote injury, it seems like that's happening. But in fact, it's supposed to be like she's experiencing cramps or something from that gotcha gotcha okay yeah i was in my head until we watched this show thinking that's what it was like she's selling the fact of that happening to her because she didn't realize she was pregnant but apparently that's not what it is okay yeah so she's just saying he's pregnant he's very happy and all that he starts doing the uh the flare celebratory elbow drops you know he drops stuff in the (laughs) ring which creates a weird visual where the dried mud is like coming off of him like dust it's really weird (laughs) it's really proud of that visual so it starts at the angle where now she's pregnant by him, but she doesn't think he's quite man enough. So she's sort of challenging him to do better. He dove into a possibly poisonous mud pit for you, lady. Yeah, right. The following thunder, he comes out to the ring and he sets up he's, like, he's going to propose to her because he's pregnant. However, the misfits and actually come in and they all beat him up while they keep Stacy Keebler in the corner. So they're mad because of what happened to Major Guns, right? But the MIA are all good guys. And there's five of them beating up this guy who just found out his girlfriend is pregnant went to marry her. And they're breaking up his, his, you know, his engagement. <laughs> it's just a weird thing for faces to do. And yeah, yeah. It's like one thing if just, you know, Hugh Morris came out, but they all, similarly, like a gang beat him up for that. It's very bizarre. <laughs> just there must be balance in the universe, man. Yes. But Bagwell comes into the storyline where... Apparently, I haven't watched for why, but between these shows, David Flair is convinced that he's not the father. Something must happen, maybe. So his first thought is, well, who would have knocked up my girlfriend? Oh, Buff Bagwell, of course. Fair enough. I mean, that's, yeah. Can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, they eventually have a match built around getting the blood sample from him, which is a whole silly Russo thing. That sounds like it goes pretty horribly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Slight spoiler alert, the pregnancy angle, other than that, goes nowhere. She never has a kid or anything. I feel like I remember hearing about this at some point, and like she eventually reveals it was just a fake. I think so. In which case, what was she feeling pain from in the match? Ate too much chili the night before, I guess? Yeah, I guess so. It's the, well, it's the mud. Poisonous mud, yeah, there you go. Must be. Oh, boy. Let's, let's leave that behind, shall we? Agreed. Backstage... Pamela is with Vampiro, the Great Muda, and the Demon, the Dark Carnival. My sympathies for your placement on this show, guys. Yeah. Vampiro, you buried Sting, you put him in a casket, you even set him on fire, but you couldn't stop him still. But tonight, will the Demon do what you couldn't? Sting, your nine lives have finally ticked down to zero. And the fate that the Juggalo army has for you will make your dance with fire look like child's play. Demon, tonight's your test. Tonight I want to see 
if you got a black heart, black enough to walk and hang with the dark carnival. And for your sake, big boy, you better prove me wrong. Everyone just kind of lingers there for a little bit after Vampiro's last statement, like Demon was supposed to get to talk or something, but they just walk off. Yeah. Kind of a strange promo from Vampiro here. Leaving aside the fact that he's turned his gimmick from maybe a vampire to fan of the insane clown posse, Vampiro is asked if Demon can defeat Sting for a final time when Vampiro hasn't been able to close the book on their feud. Vampiro's response effectively is, no, but if he doesn't, he'll be in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Way to build up your henchmen, Vampiro. I think you suck, but if you suck, I'll be mad. (laughs) Yeah, true. Poor Great Muda being attached to this. (laughs) Yeah. I really wonder what the people managing Kiss thought about all of this. <laughs> because, so, you know, they famously had a thing in the contract where it was like, the demon must wrestle, like, extra main event. It was like, I don't know, it was like five or something. Yeah. So they would announce his match as special main events just to fill the contract, and then they could have do what they want with him. But, like, the Kiss character, who's blatantly, directly copied Gene Simmons, like, the face of the band. Yeah. Is now a lackey to a... Canadian Mexican wrestler who is obsessed with the insane clown posse. Yes. That's definitely a downgrade. They can't be in love with this. No. Yeah. I, I I imagine there's a lot of regret all around on that. And hopefully they were at least made ludicrous amounts of money on it so that they can laugh all the way to the bank. But what I don't get is if WCW doesn't like this guy that much, apparently, mm-hmm. that they're going to do this kind of stuff with him and what we're about to see them do with him, why even use the character? Just Just stop using the character. Just be yeah. done with it. Because this appears to be past the special main event phase of his career. Yeah, no, for sure, yeah. So you're, you're, you've fulfilled your contractual obligations. Just be done. Regimmick the guy. Do something else. They always really thought they needed a third person for this Dark Carnival thing. And they're like, well, he's already got makeup on, so uh, I guess that counts. That qualifies. Yeah, sure. We go back to the commentators, who more explicitly tell us that Miss Hancock's emergency was not part of the match. Tony calls her by her real name, Stacy Keebler, as you noted before. Mm-hmm. Hudson notes David's appearance wasn't in his script. Again, you could maybe take that as the match being in his script, but not necessarily being scripted. Yeah. But they're getting awfully close to the line here. He literally holds up like his page like yeah. for emphasis, big visual emphasis as well. They briefly ask about her symptoms, but don't have any more information to share at this time. So they move on to the next match. Our seventh match is The Demon versus Sting. The referee for this match is Jamie Tucker. So originally this feud started with The Demon fighting Vampiro. This whole thing where he's like trying to challenge him and corrupt him, and they have a famously terrible match at Bash of the Beach. Just to be clear, Vampiro is trying to corrupt The Demon? Correct, yes. So Vampiro is trying to corrupt a person named The Demon. Yeah. Feels, feels like your work's already done. Well, there's a chart. He feels like vampires are more corrupt than demons. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying he's correct. I'd say that that's his logic. But yes. So ultimately, it seems to work because they do an angle where he seems to have full control over a demon, point where he even attacks his girlfriend, Asia. That sort of pivots into the whole Sting vampire feud, which at one point has Sting set on fire and tossed off a high object, but apparently not killed because he shows up in the build up nitros to this show. Initially, fully covered in, like, coat and everything. Actually, it's funny. He's very eerily dressed, similar to 
DDP when he's the mass stalker <laughs> before he's revealed. Uh, oh, that's not the comparison you want. Yeah, but like the, if you look at the always side by side, it's a very similar outfit. Should have imitated DDP's other great disguise, La Parka. That would have been great. Always one more La Parka. So now he's back and he's constantly going after them. But if you want to know how he survived being killed, it's eh, a good question. <laughs> very good question. And obviously, Vampire is annoyed that apparently, you know, literally murdering a man in cold blood on pay-per-view wasn't enough to keep him down, so he wants his, his lackey to fight him instead. Well, it was, it was fire, so it was more hot blood, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> the demon gets a pretty big entrance with red light and pyro and everything. Tony sells him as the modern-day Man of Steel and the God of Thunder. Thor versus Sting is a match I would watch. Yeah. Sting, for his part, gets his Crow-era strobe lights entrance and rappels down to the entrance ramp. Demon charges while Sting unhooks, but Sting beats him up, rolls him into the ring, and hits the Stinger Splash and the Scorpion Death Drop for the three count in the win. <laughs> Vampiro and Muda charge the ring, and Vampiro slugs Sting in the balls. The two beat Sting down, take him to the ramp, and choke him with his repelling cord, but Chronic make the save. Demon just walks away up the entrance ramp. Brian Adams gets a mic and gives the Dark Carnival a tag title match later in the night. Thoughts on this? <laughs> it is short and sweet. On the plus side, Sting looks really great here. He looks strong and he takes out a guy that I have no reason why he's fighting a pay-per-view. Nothing against Del Toro personally, but they didn't book him as his character that should be fighting Sting. Right, yeah. I could see this angle as a general thing going where Vampiro sends Demon to take out Sting on Nitro. Mm-hmm. And when Sting takes them out and does this exact same match on Nitro and takes them out, then, oh, well, Vampiro's got to fight him now because of that. Yeah, building to that. Yeah. If you're doing this match on a pay per view, it should be to build Demon up. Yes. By having him, even if he doesn't win, perform surprisingly well against Sting. Mm-hmm. There's things you can do with that. Mm-hmm. But this serves no purpose. Right. I will say I got amusing enjoyment out of the whole thing because. So Sting does his rappel down quickly. He's still got his little vest with he the does. carabiners on him. So as he's fighting, you can hear them jangling around. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in fact, if he, he's, I can't remember, does he take it off when he's in the ring or does he leave it on? I think he leaves it on for the entire match because okay. it's, it's super fast. Right. So that means he did an extra impactful Stinger Splash by jumping at him with those on the front of his chest. Fair enough. So yeah, I don't mind, in theory, them doing a quick squash match with Sting it's weird that it's the demon. It's the guy I thought they were building up for this kind of thing. It's weird that it's the demon on pay-per-view and not Vampiro wrestling at all. It's weird that they've already done an angle where they wrestled a straight match, Vampiro and Sting, that is. And then one where Sting is set on fire and seemingly killed. And the blow-off is Sting beating up the lackey slash henchman in less than a minute. Yeah. That's how we seem to be ending this story, <laughs> at least right now. That's a weird progression of events here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, even considering Sting's prominence and importance as a former WCW world champion and legend of the company, Demon's super quick loss here can only be seen as insulting. Yes. Maybe this would work if you were building up a new super strong character like a heel like Vader or something, but Sting is already well established. He does not need to beat Demon this fast. And there is no explaining this away and keeping Demon strong. He tried to ambush Sting, got his butt completely kicked, and got pinned in less than a minute. Salvaging Demon would take hard work and rebuilding, and I very much doubt the WCW is up for that. They are not, no. 
my biggest issue with this match is ultimately that you have Sting on the show. You give him maybe three minutes combined with the intro and the match and the post-match thing. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Yeah. Meanwhile, as you said, we have a second Chronic match on this show. At the next pay-per-view, Fall Brawl, Sting would face Vampira and Muda in a triple threat match. Obviously, the story is that they would double-team to take him out. As for the demon himself, they do a very brief attempt to salvage him. On the following Nitro, they have him break away from the group attacking Vampira and Muda in the back, which leads to a singles match between Muda and the demon. The demon loses. Clean. Okay. About how I figured that would go. So much for that. That was fun while it lasted. Backstage, Booker T's leg is being treated by medical staff. Now, is this injury supposed to be legitimate in the show's mind or not? We gotta take the script, man. Yeah. It's an injury angle, but the commentators don't discuss it with the same tone or gravity as the Keebler injury, so that now makes Booker's injury feel fake. Which, I mean, it is, but it's not supposed to feel like it is. Yeah. Having the real injury on the show has cheapened the main event's injury angle. That's true, yeah. Our eighth match is Lance Storm versus Mike Awesome in a Canadian Rules match for Storm's WCW Canadian Heavyweight Championship, otherwise known as the United States Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this match is Slick Johnson. As mentioned before, they would have a tournament to crown a new U.S. champion, the at least second one this year. It would come down to Mike Awesome and Lance Storm, which Lance Storm obviously would win. He would christen the belt the WCW Canadian Heavyweight title. He would, of course, run afoul of proud American and proud Floridian, Mike Awesome, <laughs> who would want to win the title back from him. In the build of the show as well, Lance Storm would win the Cruiserweight title and the Hardcore title. So now he's a Triple Crown champion in WCW. Thankfully, as part of the buildup, they would end the terrible Fat Chick Thriller storyline with Mike Awesome. Oy. Mind you, the way they would end it would be that he came out with one of his uh, robust ladies during a match on the Nitro before this show where he challenged for the title, he'd be betrayed by that woman who revealed she was actually Canadian the whole time. <laughs> so I guess because one betrayal means he just fully changes his opinion of women entirely. Okay. Which does happen to people, I guess. I, I gotta say, secret Canadian is, is one of the, the better uh, swerves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, no, you're a Canadian. You'll give me delicious maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> What's this all about? Oh no! Mike Awesome is out first. His music plays for quite a while before he emerges. Madden claims that he got his Canadian citizenship that morning. Good. They can keep him. Yes. Tony points out that Lance Storm gets a Goldberg-style entrance, walking all the way from the back with arena security. The fans erupt in cheers for the Canadian Storm. Storm has his three title belts, the U.S. title, cruiserweight title, and hardcore title the Canadian heavyweight title, 100 kilogram and under title, and Saskatchewan Hardcore International title, SHIT, respectively. Mm -hmm. Each of which has a Canadian flag sticker pasted over them to varying degrees of success. Yes. It looks pretty good on the US title, not so much on the others. Correct, yeah. Madden gives us another, got it like that. It's not worth trying, man. I can't hate you more than I already do. Yes. (laughs) Storm gets a microphone. After wrestling for rude and obnoxious crowds in the U.S. 
I finally get to wrestle for some real wrestling fans. In the greatest country in the world. It's hard to stop from crying right now. If you're wondering why the security entourage in the back, it's because I've become a marked and hated man in the U.S. Despite claims of being a patriotic nation, they spit on me for defending my own country. It ain't fair, anyway. It is irrational American thinking like that that has me worried of a terrorist attack in the back. A terrorist attack. Yeah, that's a bit. It says terrorist attack. Yeah, that's, that's escalation for sure. The Americans think they rule the world. It's not my fault that I threaten that illusion. It is not my fault that tonight I defeat yet another American hero, Mike Awesome. What is his fault? Now, in accordance with a Canadian championship bout, I invoke rule number 32B and name a special referee to oversee the enforcement. Oh, what? What rule number was that? 32B. Read the rule book, you jack. You haven't read it either. Absolutely, I have. No, you just look at pictures. to oversee the enforcement of the Canadian rule book. I give you an honorable, true Canadian. Jacques Rougeau. Jacques Rougeau. The crowd clearly expects it to be Bret Hart, Mm -hmm. but he calls out Jacques Rougeau. Jacques Rougeau comes out carrying a tiny rule book and wearing a referee shirt that has a Canadian flag pasted on it. Storm asks the crowd to rise for the playing of the Canadian National Anthem, and indeed they do, singing along. Unfortunately, so does Madden. For the two lines that he knows, anyway. What's funny is, so on an earlier show, he claims that he knows it in both English and French, but doesn't actually back that up at all. And he actually does do more lines in English on like one of the nitros before this. Oh, okay. So he actually does less when he's in Canada than he does building up the match. Wow. He tried to cover by saying he's choked up or something, I think. Yes. Tony informs us that Canadians' love for their country is not a work, it's a shoot. I didn't really think they were thinking, but it's uh, good to know for sure. Yes. Add it to the list. Johnson referees in the ring, and Rougeau takes a seat outside to keep watch with his rule book. I'm still confused why he's not just the referee in the ring, though. That'd be a bridge too far, I guess. Oh, okay. Maybe Canadian rules are so complicated, he needs to be able to reference the rule book at all times, and he wouldn't be able to keep a clear eye on the match. Oh, okay. Awesome largely dominates early on, and taunts the crowd as he lands a leg drop for two. Storm sends him to the ring post, but ends up knocked outside, where Awesome sets up a table, and he and Storm send each other into the barricades. Back in, Storm's springboard dropkick gets two, but Awesome belly-to-belly suplexes Storm and goes up top, and slips off. 
He quickly clotheslines Storm, and the commentators compliment his fast recovery. I agree. Yeah, because he slips off, but he lands on his feet and just merely runs into yeah. a clothesline. It is really fast cover. Good, good quick thinking on both their parts. Storm's clearly ready for him to do that, too. So. Right. Storm gets two with a backslide, but Awesome escapes Storm's maple leaf hold and hits a power bomb for the three count and the win. Except that Rougeau interrupts ring announcer David Penzer, noting that under Canadian rules, you must win by a five count. To Awesome's disbelief, the match continues. Storm tries a sunset flip, but Awesome flings him to the mat for three. Tony laughs as he notes that's only a three count. Yes. Awesome dragon sleeper, and Storm taps out. But Rougeau says, you cannot win via submission. It is pinfall only. So the match continues. Storm, Northern Lights suplex for two. Storm float over into a roll-up for three. Awesome hits a release German suplex, but Storm dumps him to the apron on a charge. Awesome slingshot shoulder block for four, but Awesome's top rope frog splash gets five. But now, Rougeau says the pin is only final if the pin competitor can't answer a ten count. Storm is up at eight, so the match continues. Awesome knocks Storm out of the ring and puts the table in the ring, but Storm kicks him in the crotch and hits him with a surprisingly fierce chair shot for four. Lance is kind of famous for wispy ones, but this was reasonably solid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not that I mind. I'd be careful with those two. Of course, yeah. They fight over the table, and Awesome super belly-to-belly suplexes Storm through it. Kind of. Awesome's footing wasn't great, so I think they just had to go with what they had. They couldn't couldn't get a full rotation. And it works as then them both sort of fighting over the move and falling as well. Yeah, again, good cover. They do with it what they can. Right, yeah. With both men down, Rougeau says whichever man reaches his feet by 10 will win. Rougeau gets Johnson to focus on Storm, while Rougeau counts for Awesome, and decks Awesome as he tries to stand. Storm reaches his feet by 10 and wins the match. Rougeau celebrates with Storm. Suddenly, Bret Hart enters, walking down to the ring with an enigmatic expression to massive cheers. He walks up to Storm, stares him down, then hugs him and Rougeau. Tony says that's the seal of approval. Hart holds the ropes for Storm, and Rougeau holds them for Brett as the three exit. Meanwhile, Tony shills a Vampiro t-shirt. It has some kind of horrible eldritch monstrosity on it that would probably be good for making people throw up as you pass them on the street. So, how many did you buy? Uh, zero. Oh, okay. Uh, thoughts on this? So, if you anything about the way I, I rate matches, you would think, oh, this match where they're constantly having the crooked referee and the restarting the rules and changing things. I think I wouldn't like it, but I, I don't know. It kind of grows on me. The way it's done, it is so blatantly favoriting Storm. And it really worked with the live crowd because they do in Canada, they, they cheer when the heel does that. It's a weird thing to say, like they, them cheering the heel, but I think it's a good example of them making a match specifically for the crowd they're in. They don't do the same kind of match in New York City because it's not the same thing. It reaches the point of humor because you keep changing the rule, even to the point where through the table crash, they don't need a pinfall first to start the 10 count. He just decides here's the rules now because the match is ending. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those ones where it's so blatantly not real that it kind of works. It's like they do a similar thing without the nationality angle, mind you, where it was Dude Love fighting Steve Austin and Vince Man keeps changing the rules during their match. Gotcha. Which is also written by Vince Russo, so you see where you got that from. The match really builds awesome nicely. He doesn't do it to his dive, which I like his dive, but you know. Yeah, I'm surprised because he normally throws that in inside the first 30 seconds of the match. Right. 
I still maintain doing the dive when you have the most energy and poise makes the most sense, but <laughs> a lot of people don't like that, and it's fine. I can live with that. But no, I think he looks really strong doing his moves. You could argue that the way, I'm sure you will, that this match doesn't make Storm look good because he's constantly getting beaten. And I get that. I absolutely get that. I think it's a combination of right place and right time for this. They maybe go a little far uh, with how many times they change the rule, but at the same time, like I said, it kind of goes into self-parody at that point, I think. Like, at one point, when they're talking commentary, where Matt's like, oh, you can read the rule book. I really want them to say, yeah, I want to come and go, can go read the Yeah, book. yeah, they, they kind of leave that plot thread dangling. They could have, like, tried to chase him down for the rule book or something like that, yeah. It seemed awesome. They didn't have any friends in the back that could help him out during all this. Yeah. In this exact environment, at this exact time, Storm is the national hero. It, it really works in a weird way. Um, as you've somewhat hinted, I... Agree in part and disagree in part. Fair enough. On this match. Yeah. As a match, this is terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from a couple little problems with top rope footing that Awesome recovered from really quickly, Storm and Awesome were on and put on an excellent fast-paced show. The gimmick of the match is also very fun, Yeah, with Awesome getting convincing wins but having the rug pulled out from him by the ever-changing rules. Mm-hmm. Awesome does a great job reacting to those, as do ring announcer David Penzer and referee Mark Johnson. Yeah. All look increasingly exasperated and resigned as the match goes on. Penzer's reactions, especially, I loved. He's just looking on in disbelief and and you know, kind of waving his hands around as yeah. Rougeau is explaining stuff to him. He doesn't normally get highlighted, so it's just kind of neat oh, yeah. to to see. Well, even that. Uh, like with the last bit when they fall to the table, Sig like Johnson like goes to yeah, j- yeah, Joe, like what do I do now? <laughs> yeah, what? Okay, what is this supposed to be? Yeah, yeah. Both of them, I thought, did a terrific job with their reactions here. Mm-hmm. As as you noted, it's not really great for Storm, or I think as you noted that I would note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's not really great for Storm. He gets beaten convincingly three times and only ends up winning because Rougeau basically hands him the win, mm-hmm. uh, cheating for him. To his credit, he does get some three and four counts on Awesome once the five count rule is implemented. Yeah. So it's not like his performance is worthless here. Yeah, it's not a squash match. No, Demon gets that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. And Storm lands some really nice moves as well. He gets to look good. It's just that he does lose multiple times in one match, which is not a great buildup for a wrestler. Where I disagree with you is I feel like this is taking place in the wrong country. Mm. Storm and Rougeau are blatantly cheating, rewriting the rules as they want, and they get cheered for it because they're Canadian patriots in Canada. Put this in the U.S., and you will get an epic heel reaction for the same stuff. It just feels odd, even in the malleable face and heel dynamics of WCW in 2000, that such massive, massive, blatant cheating is being greeted with cheers. Leaving that aside, with Storm being so popular with the crowd, it makes it feel even stranger that Storm gets cleanly beaten three times in one match. Mm -hmm. It does work the crowd into a frenzy for him, so I suppose it does work. But what it left me thinking of is, do you remember the one match with Rey Mysterio, where you, I think, comment that it just felt like he was selling and selling and selling for so long, even if it did get a crowd reaction? Mm -hmm. This is like that for me. I gotcha. Uh, Except the comeback is Jacques Rougeau punching Mike Awesome in the face. (laughs) Right, yeah. Regardless, though, this was still a ton of fun. Yeah. And easily would be a match of the night contender, even on a better show. Yeah, agreed. I think there's an issue of repetition. I got only having so many ideas, Ventruso, that is. Having two matches built around quick refereeing in different matches, mind you, in different true, true. stories they're telling with them. But yeah, there's two different corrupt referees making the match turn the way one to 
on the same show is a little much. Fair enough, yeah. So if, if you'd done one of these on one show, this stands out even more as, oh, here's our straight matches, and well, what's this? This guy changed the rules as he goes. Definitely. I think this is definitely a really good house show match. You do a camera. Oh my gosh, yes. I thought, which is basically they did. They decide they have the talent they have, and I think boy, once they line up Bret Hart to appear, they're like, well, we got it in pay-per-view now, because Bret Hart's going to show up. Mm-hmm. On the next Nitro, Storm would uh, have to defend his title again against Mike Awesome, but he'd get help in the form of Jacques Rougeau appearing again. They don't do the full uh, Chi referee thing. He just actually comes in to tax referee and takes his place before he's replaced again. But while during all the nonsense happening, both Elo Skipper and Car uh, Ule show up, the future PCO, now in Impact Wrestling from RH. They help him out, and he wins with, again, Jacques Rougeau kind of fall for him. It's only he counts a um, submission, by the way, <laughs> in a championship match, and they're still in Canada in Nitro. Okay. So they even intentionally break their own rules. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of funny. So now he's got these guys with him. So that leads to a backstage segment following that, where as a reward, he gives away his two lesser titles. Backstage, he gives the 101 kilograms or less title to Luke Skipper, who would go on to defend it that night. The cat shows up during this promo and makes him defend both titles. He successfully defends his title that night, thankfully. On the flip side, PCO is given, as mentioned, the Saskatchewan Hardcore International title, which first off, it's Saskatchewan and International. Yeah, yeah, that's they were clearly just working yeah. backwards from the acronym. I could sworn vaguely remember the show from, like I guess, that was 23 years ago, that it was like Invitational title, which would have made slightly better, more sense. I guess, yeah. But I, but I, I, it's international. That's what they call and it. And I will admit, it's entirely possible that I just misread that somewhere. Oh, no, no. I, I, it's, it's on my notes international oh, okay. as well. Okay. No, you're not wrong. We can't both be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately for him, he would be forced to defend the title against Norman Smiley. <sighs> they wrestle, to be fair, a kind of fun hardcore match. It's funny. They, they point out their own inconsistencies because Lance Storm have to win the hardcore title. He has one defense before he gets the title away. He, and he says, under the, these rules, it has to be a straight wrestling match. So it's like him and like, I think Big Vito in a straight wrestling match for the hardcore title. Okay, yeah. So when they get this match, it's done under regular hardcore rules, other than the fact that they don't start in the back. They bring up, the, I thought that the hardcore title rules were regular matches, but yeah. They do a, a fairly creative finish where PCO goes to the top rope, he's going to do his big uh, splash to Norman Smiley. Smiley is like grabbing the referee nearby while he's on the table. The referee inadvertently pulls him off the table, you know, trying to get off of him. Mm-hmm. So PCO misses the splash and goes to the table. When Smiley lets go, he then falls back on top of him and actually nearly pins him, <laughs> thus regaining the title. Okay. So the Landstorm's title he gave away is lost to Norris Miley in like 35 minutes, I think. They say for the record. Okay. As noted, yeah, they give away a rematch for the title with Austin before this, but we get an official, proper pay-per-view rematch. In this case, it is Hugh Morris fighting for the title at Fall Brawl. Pamela is backstage with Kevin Nash. Big sexy Kevin Nash. This is the moment we've all been waiting for, the three-way dance. However, there is no Goldberg in sight since his accident yesterday. Yeah, I think the key word there is accident. You know, what happened on the motorcycle is one thing. The real accident was him me off. And I had an idea that this would happen, that he wouldn't show up. So it looks like me and Steiner. But the thing is, 
Nash is in this sport for two things. That's money and the belt. I'm getting the title shot. I'm going over Steiner tonight. Nash delivers this promo pretty well, but it has some really, really confusing statements in it. In particular, calling it an accident that Goldberg made him mad, which would seem like it means that he's thinking of forgiving Goldberg as he realizes that it's unintentional. Yeah, true. (laughs) He also slips in that he's going over Steiner, which in insider lingo means the person scripted to win the match. Another example of WCW playing fast and loose with their show's internal reality tonight. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty basic Nash promo. Not that memorable. Other than, yeah, other than the outsider lingo, or the, uh, the insider lingo, rather. I'm thinking outsiders because of him. I mean, it's him saying it, so it could be outsiders or insiders. I Fair guess. enough, yeah. He was both tag teams, yeah. <laughs> I don't like them talking at that thread. And it's not the last time they'll do it. Our ninth match is Chronic, Brian Adams and Brian Clark, versus The Dark Carnival, Vampiro and the Great Muda. For Chronic's WCW World Tag Team Championship, referee for this one is Mickey J. So during the build to this show, the Dark Carnival, as part of their chaos involving Earth Miller, have also attacking Chronic. They've attacking them during matches, after matches. They do post match angles and everything with them. So they do a triple third tag team match where it's Chronic versus the Dark Carnival versus Jinrak and O'Hare. Chronic is going for a pin on one of the Dark Carnival members, I can't remember to which, while Jinrak and O'Hare go for a pin on the other one. They clearly go for a pin after the ref starts counting for Chronic, and then they're surprised they didn't win the belt off of Chronic. <laughs> so both members of Dark Carnival being pinned is not a great visual to begin with. On top of that, in the buildup to the respective matches with Sting and the Demon and Muda and Ernest Miller, they do a tag team match where it's Ernest Miller and Sting against Vampira and Muda. And they do a whole attack angle with the demon and everything. But while that's going on, they make sure that Ernest Miller hits his finish and pins Vampiro. Weird way to build this team up, guys. Yeah, yeah. And obviously we have the earlier attack on this show, which is why they're mad. Okay. Vampiro and Muda enter through green smoke to something that's probably an insane clown posse song, but I don't care to check. Chronic also enter through green smoke. Way to differentiate those teams, WCW. Yeah. Vampiro shoves Adams, and Adams flings him out of the ring. Vampiro gets back in, and he and Clark start the match proper. Tony asks if Canadian rules still apply, and Madden is not sure, as Vampiro is Canadian. Yeah. Vampiro dodges around, but Clark gets two counts with a shoulder block and a powerbomb. Clark tags Adams, and they double-team Vampiro, but Muda knees Adams from outside, and Vampiro tags Muda. Muda goes for the handspring elbow, but Adams catches him and hits a full Nelson slam for two. Nice spot there. Mm -hmm. Tag to Clark, who lands strikes, but Muda tags Vampiro, who runs right into a power slam for two. Yeah. Back to Adams, and Vampiro falls bizarrely sideways from a big boot. Oh yeah, I noticed that. That was weird. Adams beats Vampiro up outside. But back in, you can't powerbomb Vampiro? Yeah, yeah. Vampiro and Muda trade off working over Adam's legs, and Clark accidentally distracts Jay to allow some hits from the outside man. Adams ducks a high kick from Vampiro, and they collide, both going down for six. Both tag out. Clark runs wild with clotheslines on the Dark Carnival and hits the meltdown on Vampiro. He doesn't cover, which mystifies the commentators, but Vampiro was not the legal man. So it's just a rare case of someone actually remembering that, I guess. Fair enough. 
Muda goes for the mist, but Clark dodges and the mist hits Jay. DQ? Nah. Clark and Adams go for high times, but Vampiro saves, so they beat Vampiro up and go for high times on him, but the Harris brothers suddenly run in, throw Adams out, and hit the H-bomb on Clark. Otherwise known as the shoddiest-looking double-team move in history, I think. Yes, agreed. It's the one that's less impactful than another move that they regularly do, but this one's their finisher. It's bizarre, yeah. Muda moonsaults Clark for the three-count from a still-mostly-blinded Jay. Vampiro and Muda celebrate with their belts and flee before Adams can get after them with a chair. Adams checks on Clark, and Muda and Vampiro celebrate with some ICP fans outside. Thoughts on this one? It's an alright match. I think having someone like people with real experience like Muda and Vampiro, whether you necessarily like Vampiro, he is at least pretty experienced at this point. It makes a good structure for a match like this. That said, I don't think Chronic is that great at selling. I don't think they're used to being the, we have to sell in the match. Yeah. When, to be fair, part of the problem as well is that, so they're trying to sell like leg injuries and that kind of thing. They're already pretty methodical to begin with, so it's not like Booker T when he suddenly doesn't run anymore, for instance. Yeah, that's true. Or Ray selling a knee injury. You're like, whoa, that's really serious. The guy that kind of just walks around at maybe slightly faster than normal speed doesn't really sell the leg injury too well. Yeah. Honestly, my positives I had from the multi-man tag match are kind of lost here because people I really thought stood out are in this match. It's Chronic is dead. They're not terrible. I'm not trying to say that, but like they don't have a lot going for them. And there's weird stuff like, so Adam's pressing the Vampiro, but doesn't like drop him on like on the barricade or on a table or anything. He just kind of just drops him. Yeah. And Piro like puts his feet down, which understandably does take that bump that way. So he just kind of lands and just flattens out. I'm like, what, what was that? Yeah, yeah, true. ET's like he was going to go to the round announce table, and I know someone told him not to. It's not clear what happened. <laughs> the fact that there's more interference than in a tag match with Chronic, no less, on this show is not not appealing to me. My theory is WCW is like a shark. You know, sharks keep moving or they die. If you have more than one match with like no interference, something bad's going to happen. So I gotta throw it in there. <laughs> Stopping the apocalypse yeah, by the so. weirdest ritual ever. Yes. Okay, so we have the Dark Carnival attacking Chronic during their tag match set up this tag match. And now we have the Harris Brothers attacking Chronic during the second tag match to set up another match, which is not for the titles. Well, what's bizarre about it to me is there's a faction on this show that would have a clear motivation to attack Chronic. Yeah. The Filthy Animals. That's true. Who were displeased that they were going to be facing Chronic, but instead... This totally unrelated faction comes in to attack them, even though this is the Filthy Animals' opportunity to ensure they don't have to face Chronic for the titles. Right. We also don't hear anything about them being upset about another tag title match being given without them as well. I mean, presumably they get it on Nitro either way, but... Yeah, but they do, yes. But it's weird that they don't complain about it on the show. Like, what do you mean? We're next in line. Yeah. It's weird Vince Russo not doing a backstage skit for something that actually deserves it for once. Mm-hmm. Oh. After his super quick win over the demon, Chronic comes in and saves Sting from being literally murdered. That's true. By the Dark Carnival. So where is Sting when the Harris brothers show up and attack them? That's fair enough, yeah. Well, I mean, it is Sting. He's very bad at detecting plans from heels, so yeah, he probably just didn't realize anything suspicious was going on. I guess so. <laughs> oh, two new referees coming in. Oh, well. Doop-doop-a-doop. Yeah, nothing exceptional to this match, but I didn't feel like it was anything bad. Vampiro has a weird sell or two 
that seems to be kind of a pattern with his matches. Yeah. But he and Muda also do a nice job building a story of trying to work the legs to keep the bigger atoms down. And there were some quite nice counter spots worked in as well. The ending's kind of a mass of bodies, but generally works. Though I'm not sure still why Muda's green mist does not prompt a DQ. I'm pretty sure the ref would know for sure who sprayed him with mist. Yeah. Given Buddha's long career doing just that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, was this no DQ? Nobody said it was. Overall, an average tag match, but I will say, given three out of the four guys already had a match tonight, I'm happy to give it a little bit of extra credit. Mm-hmm. I realize, like, Chronic weren't heavily in the four-man tag match, but it's not like they did no work whatsoever. Oh, that's what I was going to say before, yeah, as well as that. I think they wisely booked Chronic to work very little in the in the four-man tag match. Knowing they're going to have this one. No, you know, because that, yeah, knowing that, exactly. And again, that, it'll help the other people properly get highlighted going for the titles, even mm. they knew it wouldn't win, yeah. I've almost forgotten. There's a really weird contradiction in commentary. I don't know if you caught this. They make a point of being worried when I think it's Adams is nearby. It's talking about how big and strong he is. Yeah. They make a lot of him being like Godzilla or something to the table. But like 30 seconds later, they talk about how you're surprised you realize that Vampire and Muda are almost even looking chronic in the eye. Yeah, it's like, oh, these guys are so gigantic. Oh, the other guys are almost as big as them. Yeah, you don't realize until you see them, though. But yeah. It's like, yeah. Good, good job. Pick which thing you're trying to build up. <laughs> Exactly. Well, good news. Vampire and Muda would lose the tag titles the very next night in Nitro. So we would get the guaranteed title match with the both the animals. There'd be a bunch of interference. Before the match would even start, Chronic would be at ringside, and they would be attacked by Harris Bros. and leave ringside. So they still have a bunch of people ringside. At least there's less people now. That happens before the match really even starts. So it's like, more stuff going on. Which do you focus on? Everything, I guess. So the way they lose their tag titles is the matches mostly go on their way towards the end. They're controlling everything. Sting runs in, hits both of them with the bat in front of the referee, and then uh, I think it's Disco sort of shoves Ray so he falls on top of the pin on one of them. <laughs> so to be fair, if they don't lose in humiliating fashion, they lose because they're attacked by Sting. But it's still weird to give them the titles and immediately... And immediately, them. yeah. yeah. Really builds the titles up super well. Yeah. To build up the title even more... The now current champions for the animals would not defend them on Fall Brawl. They instead be involved in that big multiman match I hinted at before with the Natural Born Thrillers and other people. I, my logic is, I guess, we get two tag time matches in this show. So we got to have zero on the next show. Okay. Sure. You get one per show or zero on the next one if you get to. You use up all your tag time matches, I guess. Oh, and as for the Chronic team, of course. They all fight the Harris brothers in a very Russo match, but also a confusingly title Russo match. It's called a First Blood Chain match. So is it it's a match where they use First Blood Chains? <laughs> Maybe it's, yeah, it's a match where they use copies of Rambo First Blood. Oh, uh, yeah. Attached to chains and you hit each other with the DVD. Like links, uh, like links on them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd watch that. And somebody actually gets the VHS tape and does more damage with that. Oh, well, yeah, of course. Betamax for maximum power. Yeah, obviously, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was that ever on Laserdisc? Because, man, that would be, like, the, the best of the weapon. Probably, yeah. Cut someone's head off with that thing. You could do the Van Damator with that. Hold it in front of him. <laughs> Pamela is backstage with Booker T. Booker T, we saw what Jeff Jarrett did to you earlier. We know your heart will hold up in the ring, but will your knee? Will you be able to defend the WCW championship? You know, like I said, I've said it. Once and I said a thousand times, Jeff Jarrett, before you take this title away from me, you're going to have to kill me right in the middle of that ring. You made one fatal mistake. 
And that is I am still standing, Jeff. So I tell you this, just a couple of weeks ago, you made this thing personal when you took my wife clean out of the game. So tonight, when I leave you face down on that mat, I want you to remember one thing. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Coming up next, the three-way dance. Thought this was a short but very solid promo from Booker. He gets across that he's definitely hurt, but he's still able and willing to keep fighting Mm -hmm. and going to get some payback. I think it could have done with a little bit more time, but he did what he needed to do with the time he had. Agreed, yeah. I think I get what he means, the whole face down the mat thing, but if you're going to beat him, you beat him face up on the mat. Uh, Maybe submission hold, you know, you could. Oh, okay, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. I never liked you, Nash! Poor pitiful Bill. Nash and Goldberg. What's this? Scott Steiner. What the hell? We have seen one blind side after another. These guys are all over each other. The intensity is unreal. My God. Big Sexy is back in the house. Goldberg is a maniac. Now they can't hold back Scott Steiner. No one can hold back Scott Steiner. You knew that Scott Steiner would not back down at all. I'm still a man! When we go up in Vancouver, I can't guarantee that I'm going to be a professional. Kevin Nash, I don't give a about you. I don't give a about Goldberg. Come out here so I can beat your He's got revenge on his mind. It's going to go down Sunday. Three men enter, one man leave. If you only see one pay-per-view, it better be Sunday's. This is going to be a train wreck. We cut to a video package covering the Nash-Goldberg-Steiner match. It's not a lot of story coverage to it, but it does effectively get across that these three really do not like each other. Yeah. <sighs> Alright, Al, you ready for this? As far as I'm going to ever be, I guess, yeah. Our tenth match is Big Sexy Kevin Nash versus Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner versus possibly Goldberg to determine the number one contender for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this match is Billy Silverman. You know, I feel like Goldberg needs like a big something nickname for this match. It's Big Sexy, Big Papa Pump, and then it's just Goldberg. Big Unisol. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. Big Romeo <laughs> Goldberg. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'd be fine with that. <laughs> so, obviously, these are three of the top stars in the company, especially with Hogan and Randy Savage both gone from the company forever now. So, it's natural that they be vying for the title. At previous month's event, there was a match between Goldberg, who at this point is a heel, because apparently he came back from injury and hates everybody now. Because, sure, why not? Maybe the hospital really did turn him into a unisole. You know, that would explain a lot, actually. <laughs> that would really explain that he'll turn a lot better than he did. He would uh, face Kevin Nash and beat Kevin Nash and take Scott Hall's contract, which is on the line of this match. And uh, eat it. Okay. Just crumble a ball and put it in his mouth. Hoped it tastes good. Yeah, so now, so that's why Scott never came back, because it's when he his contract. That's just how that works. <laughs> As part of that match, Scott Steiner would come in. They'd be a brief sort of alliance between these two of them. I guess because they're both heels, they are aligned against Nash. However, they wouldn't last very long, and they would basically hate each other again. They reminded why they hate each other beforehand. It would lead to a match where it was a Fatal 4 match on Nitro after Bash the Beach where whoever won would be number one contender. Obviously, we know who wins that. That's Jeff Jarrett. It's the match fall of Jeff Jarrett, Chris Canyon, 
Goldberg and Scott Steiner, not Kevin Nash for some reason. Okay. During the match, it would be Goldberg and Steiner would lock up and they would try to do the spot where they're like both locked in the belly to belly and sort of fall with the ropes. It doesn't quite work. To be fair, you're throwing like 500 pounds of mass over the rope. So I don't know how easy that would be, but it's kind of awkward how it works. It's basically just a way so they can have Goldberg spear Canyon, but not pin Canyon and Jeff Jarrett pins them. Gotcha. So they can't show their outs and now... That's why they, along with Nash, who has a beef with them already, and is, I think, two or three-time champion at this point, are all fighting for number contendership. Okay. NWO Wolfpack theme count, one. Oh, yeah. Kevin Nash is first out. He is very careful to walk on the far side of the ramp to stay well clear of the still-present mud pit. Doesn't want to make any contact with that poison mud. It's weird they didn't cover that. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Steiner comes out to his usual annoying sirens, and he's not at all worried about the mud pit. No. Tony brings up an interview where Russo said they would, quote, do what's best for WCW, and theorizes that based off of that, and what Kevin Nash has said, Nash is going to win. Hudson agrees because Nash has muscle in the ring and political stroke outside of it. So, what, he can get himself booked to win, but then has to beat up a guy anyway? Yeah. What is that line supposed to mean? (laughs) Yeah, it's like he has the political stroke to get a match, and then he's so strong he'll definitely win it, I guess? I guess. That's the best answer for that I could think of. Madden bets Steiner, and Tony agrees that if Steiner doesn't want something to go down, then it probably won't. So he's never lost a match before? Or he you know, was fine with it, I guess. Oh, okay, I guess so, yeah. This is just bizarre commentary. They're edging right up to saying this story is about who could get themselves scripted to win. Yeah. But then trying to keep a sense of competition by basically saying, ah, they'll have to fight to win anyway. Makes no sense. Yeah. Goldberg's music hits, but he doesn't come out. Goldberg's music hits again, and he still doesn't come out. Thought you are going to kind of do a Goldberg theme count, too. <laughs> yeah. Tony asks why would they would play the music a second time if Goldberg wasn't here. Very good question. Nash asks for the music to be cut so they can get started. Steiner and Nash trade strikes, and after a Nash big boot, Steiner rolls outside. Nash sends him to the barricades, but... Goldberg appears and hits Nash with a chair and aggressive punches. Steiner gets Goldberg in the ring and gets two counts with an elbow drop and a T-bone suplex, but Goldberg fires back with a flying shoulder block and super kick, quote, that took Bret Hart out. Yeah. Per Tony. You know, he's in the building, guys. Yeah. I'm not sure if him being in the building makes that reference more or less acceptable. Nash recovers, and Goldberg wins a slugfest with him, but Nash knees him in the injured ribs repeatedly. Steiner gets two counts on Nash with a belly-to-belly suplex and an elbow drop, and tells Silverman he sucks. Goldberg gets a nice butterfly suplex on Steiner, and they clothesline each other down. Nash sends Steiner outside and goes for the jackknife powerbomb on Goldberg. But Goldberg suddenly pushes him away and storms off up the ramp. Vince Russo appears and tells him to get back in the ring, but Goldberg shouts, you and walks out, followed by a distressed Russo. Steiner hits Nash with a chair as the commentators theorize that Thigh. Goldberg was supposed to take the jackknife power bomb, but refused. Madden says Nash was a real professional for not punching Goldberg out and winning the match. Tony wonders what the two will do for a match finish now if that was the planned ending. Will they have to improvise? Yes. They say all that, live on air. Yeah. Meanwhile, 
Steiner scores two counts with a belly-to-back suplex and a backbreaker, and Medeja comes down the ramp. Nash big-boots Steiner and hits snake eyes on the turnbuckle, then sets for a choke slam, but Steiner shoves the ref down, and Medeja slugs Nash in the crotch. Nash slugs Steiner in the crotch, and Medeja elbow-drops Nash in the crotch for two for Steiner. So, in, in the show's fiction, are all those real ball shots now yeah i believe so because he has a line about her going to business for herself doesn't i think i maybe i don't know nash ddt's steiner for one and madden claims nash normally doesn't use that so they must be working quote on the fly but that was a terrible sell of the ddt as well yeah it wasn't great holy crap (laughs) medasia breaks it up and nash goes after her but steiner puts on a sleeper Nash knocks him into the turnbuckles to get free, hits a big boot, and hits the jackknife powerbomb for the three count and the win. And he went up for it, Goldberg. Someone, I think Hudson? I think Hudson says it, yeah. NWO Wolfpack theme count, two. The commentators wildly pinball back and forth between talking about this as a legitimate win in a legitimate match and openly talking about Goldberg refusing to take a planned spot. Mm -hmm. Absolutely bizarre. Yeah. Thoughts on this one? <laughs> All right, so let's discuss it in two parts, because that's really what this match is. Yes, okay. I'll, I'll cover the triple threat match, and then the singles match separately. Okay. All right. As the triple threat match, it's pretty fun, other than Goldberg appearing both too late and too early, because he's not gone very long to really even matter his, his absence of battle. That's true, yeah. 45 seconds a minute, and he's just there. It's like, was he lacing his boots up, just wasn't ready in time? <laughs> like, that's all his absence was? Other than that aspect, it's enjoyable for what it is. It's the three big guys that are at the top of their game and the top of their establishment really knock each other around. They're not playing soft with each other. Like, I'm so conditioned to Holland Hogan stuff where he's doing back rakes and, you know, noogies and, you know, mm-hmm. jaw jacking for 20 minutes, it seems like sometimes. So I think these guys just hit each other around is enjoyable. It's not the most finesse match, obviously, but it's enjoyable up to that point. Yeah. Then we get the turn where Goldberg leaves and it becomes something not as good, for sure. I'd to say Goldberg being there makes the match so much better. It's just the way it's booked is not great. I mean, there's a lot of big boots in this match from Nash. You know, he joked that he only has like four moves and he, he definitely shows it here. I, I almost wonder if they're trying to sell that they're having to abandon plans and improvise in the choreography as well. I think they are, actually, yeah. Yeah. Both guys, I think, have more in them than they show for the yeah. latter part of the match, yeah. Right. There's also an odd part of the story where this match is, I think it's about 10 minutes or so long total, mm-hmm. but they act like they're wrestling for, like, 30 minutes, like the commentators do. Yeah. Because admittedly, it's, it's 10 fairly hard-hitting match minutes, but, yeah, it's weird that it's, like, um, what's left in him? I'm like, they don't? They probably doing pretty well, I would think. With the whole story of Goldberg supposedly going off script and nonsense, we get the combination of repeated moves, all the terrible shoot commentary, and about five nut shots combined. Yeah, that's a lot. It's, yeah, it's weird because they, like, they prolong segments, then they also rush through stuff. Like, they go right from starting getting up to being almost immediately thrown off, and then big boot powerbomb. Yeah. The, only bit of levity I, I can really take out of this match is when Nash is coming back in for the first time after being attacked by Goldberg. He's doing his cool stepping over the rope because I'm so tall bit. And he kind of gets caught a little in the ropes. He sort of wobbles. He catches himself, kind of with awesome. It's his big dramatic moment. He sort of wobbles in and he's reset. But yeah. 
Yeah, to to be fair to him, I feel like that's the point when he's getting back in after being knocked out. So I kind of took it a little bit as him just kind of still selling being wobbly. Maybe. But yeah, it could be either way. Yeah, it takes a little bit off of his dramatic reveal. I'm back to fight you now. It's a little thing. <laughs> and in this match, it's not been close to the worst thing. Right, yes. <sighs> All right. I'm ready. The action in this was fine. Yeah. Even pretty intense at times. Sure. Which makes it all the more bewildering that WCW decided to completely ruin this by pulling out a storyline about a wrestler refusing to do the match's scripted finish. Even more than the Stacy Keebler moment earlier in the show, this absolutely destroys WCW's fictional reality. Yes. The commentators have just admitted live on air during the pay-per-view that WCW's matches are scripted and there are planned finishes. Yes, we all know pro wrestling is fake, but you do not say it in the middle of a pro wrestling show. Right. That takes people right out of the show, breaks the show's fictional reality, and destroys not only any interest in the current match, but any match on the rest of the show. It, yeah, it's, you're basically doing that terrible Fox special where the, the mass wrestlers reveal how all yes. stuff is done, yeah. but doing it on your show. Yeah. This is not like being open about the show being scripted in interviews or the like outside of WCW. Mm-hmm. It's fine for the performers to say, go on Jay Leno and talk about how they put matches together or the work that they put into making sure things go safely and that kind of stuff. That doesn't hurt the show's reality. Yeah. That's outside this show. But this is being done within the show's fiction by characters on the show. Yeah. When wrestlers are striking and putting on holds, we know that they're actually cooperating, sure. But mm-hmm. what you've just said is that within the show's fictional reality, they're doing that too. Yeah. It calls into question the entire concept of wrestling storytelling. When Booker T's leg got slammed in the door by Jeff Jarrett, was that real in the show's fiction? Or is that another act? Was Booker T being really nice and professional letting Jarrett do that? But then why are the commentators talking about it like it was a real and heinous attack? How am I supposed to care about the world title match and root for Booker T when you've just admitted that even in your show's fictional universe, these aren't real fights? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You only have to look at the commentary for this match itself to see how awkward this gets. The commentators switch wildly between talking about Nash and Steiner being more professional than Goldberg, or Goldberg not cooperating with the booking, and then trying to talk about Nash and Steiner like they're actually fighting, even when they just said they were improvising an act. They try to get around it by talking about Steiner being a loose cannon and implying he might not cooperate, but that just doesn't work at all. No. Picture any other fiction show doing this. Mm -hmm. Leverage, maybe. Okay. The target of the episode's con breaks character because they don't want to look dumb playing a character who gets conned. They walk off set, arguing on camera with the director while the cast stands there looking confused. Yeah. Then the team alternates between working on a new con, now targeting the previous second-in-command, and talking about how unprofessional the actor playing the first target was (laughs) and how professional the new target actor is for willingly playing someone that gets fooled. Yeah. It would never happen. Yeah. No other show would do this. No other show would do this. No other show would be so dumb as to sacrifice its entire fiction in order to get a brief, confusing swerve in on the audience. Uh But WCW would. WCW is willing to kill not only the current match, but every match to come, and indeed, every match that has come before, just to momentarily confuse the audience. Seriously, that's what they did here. They broke this match. They broke Booker T versus Jeff Jarrett. They broke Flair versus Steamboat. They broke Flair versus Sting. 
They broke the NWO versus WCW. They broke Magnum TA versus Tully Blanchard. Yeah. They broke every single match. Mm-hmm. On Tony's podcast, What Happened When, uh-huh. Conrad asked him what they were doing here. And I will apologize, this will be heavily bleeped. Okay. Who f***ing knows, Tony replies. <laughs> I can't defend this shit, man. I can't. But I can only tell you that you only had to connect the dots. It's pretty apparent why, number one, we were in the shitter, and why, number two, Turner Broadcasting was tired of us. They didn't want to have anything to do with this shit. Who would? He goes on to say that though he doesn't defend Turner Broadcasting in light of other decisions around the end of WCW, sure. he can see why they didn't want to show this stuff. Because if you do have wrestling, it doesn't make any sense. There's no rhyme or reason to it. You can hear the annoyance in his voice as he says, This is part of me. My name is on this thing. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of times in the final years of WCW that Tony just had to make the best of what he was given, but how do you make the best of something like this? You've literally been told to rip apart the entire concept of your show live on air. Yeah. And once it's done, it's done. WCW cannot repair this. They can't suddenly say, oh, never mind, everything's real again. It's up to the fans to just pretend it didn't happen at all. Yeah. That's the only way to get invested in WCW matches again, and that would be tough to manage. WCW didn't have many fans left in 2000 to begin with, but I would wager this show cost them quite a number of what was left. I would think, yeah. You know, people talk a lot about David Arquette as world champ, but for my money, if you want to point to one single event in 2000 that more than any other contributes to the death of WCW, this is it. Yeah, I can see that. It's it's one thing with like on Conan O'Brien, you know, when they'd have a bit that would go wrong, he would joke about how you know why do we do this stupid thing, and like it would cut to the producer who was like makes a bewildered face, you know, that's it's a comedy show. Yeah, comedy can do fourth wall breaks. Yeah, serious stuff cannot do fourth wall breaks, no. and I and I know like calling wrestling serious stuff may not be accurate. And well, they're trying to make it serious. They're they're they are going for a serious plot. Yeah, you know, this is supposed to be an athletic competition. Yeah where you're seeking the title, you know, that you can't say, oh, it's not actually an athletic competition as part of the actual show, and then ask people to take it as an athletic competition again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's it's honestly depressing. This this match is honestly depressing. Yeah, it is. On the following Nitro, there'd be a rematch between Scott Steiner and Kevin Nash where he would get assistance from Goldberg, who would come and attack. Less that he's helping Nash, and more that he's attacking Scott Steiner. Presumably he comes out and shows uh, shows Steiner the part in the script where he's supposed to attack him, and Steiner's supposed to go down for it, and Steiner's like, oh yeah, sure, fine. Yeah, exactly. Because he's such a professional. He is, yeah. If anyone's a professional, it's the guy that almost blinded DDP in a backstage fight. <laughs> yes. Uh, they also ran- randomly bring uh, Rick Steiner back in. They set up him to fight Nash for the number contendership, but he's also taken out by Goldberg. This is all set up a match at Fall Brawl between Goldberg and Scott Steiner. Okay. Which I assume is legit after everything that happened. I mean, yeah, clearly they've got a, hope a major, legit, fictional, possibly real beef. Yes. So Nash, now with his number containership firmly established, would fight the champion going out the next match. Okay. The commentators go over the match one more time just to drive the nail in the coffin a little harder. Tony tries to kind of put the focus back on Nash now being number one contender, but Madden and Hudson keep the focus on Goldberg's lack of cooperation. 
Tony's facial expressions here are fascinating. Yeah. And he's so thrown by the whole thing that he says that up next will be the World Tag Team Championship match. The others, I guess, are thrown enough as well that neither of them calls him on it. No one corrects him, yeah. And just cut to the video package, yeah. Yep. I was thinking it reminds me of the infamous botch with Honor the Giant when he famously, he wins wins the title of Hogan, the, the crooked twin referees. And then announces that he's selling the World World Tag Team Championship to Ted DiBiase. Yes. Booker T defends against Jeff Jarrett. We're gonna go to war. Now can't you dig that? Booker T, the WCW champion, is respected by the people. A lifetime of work has gone into his goal. He's a fighting champion. And now, let's get down to business. Jeff Jarrett visualizes himself at the top of the charts. We'll call it Slap Nights Theater. Booker T. His body is bruised and battered. If the champ has any left, he'll have to bring it all in this important title defense. Jeff Jarrett. With his lethal guitar in tow, this self-centered egotist will do anything to get the WCW World title back in his trophy case. Booker T has to tough it out. Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one. Booker T, the people's champion. At New Blood Rising. We get a video package for the surely totally real Booker T versus Jeff Jarrett match. Mm-hmm. Talking about Booker T's definitely legitimate competitive career and Jarrett's definitely legitimate attacks on people with guitars and viciousness and such. Yeah. Quick, try to reset everything. <laughs> so... Our final match is Booker T versus Jeff Jarrett for Booker's WCW World Tag Team, I mean, World Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this match is Slick Johnson. Booker T is a strong fighting champion. They really build up the fact that he's been in the company for eight years. He's been fighting his way at the top. You know, he's been a strong fighter and he's won all these titles. We finally, when given his break, by the ignominious Russo, you know, he gets to come out on top after the whole complicated mess that's really hard to unpack, especially with all of the weird just unpacked, the Bash of the Beach. If I say he's champion. We will discuss that in our next series, for sure. Oh, yes, for sure. As noted, the man he beat, Jeff Jarrett, would get the number kindership match from that fatal four-way with uh, Canyon Goldberg and Scott Steiner. In the build-up, he would constantly attack... Uh, Booker T. He is a spot where he counters the Harlem sidekick by hitting with his guitar, mm-hmm. which I guess both look impactful, but it breaks away on his padded knee. I don't really see how that hurts. Mm. I mean, the head thing is one thing, but hacking like hitting him like the side of the leg with the breakaway piece of balsa wood doesn't really seem that impactful to me. I see why they pitch it. Oh, what are you talking about? That's clearly a totally legitimate guitar. Oh, uh, there's no fiction in, in, in WCW anymore. That's that's the last match. Oh, okay. I'm totally sorry to bring that up. I can see why they pitched the visual. Ooh, he goes for a move. You hit him in the mid-move. But you could hit him in the head doing mid-move. But whatever. We're introduced to Booker T's real, actual wife at this time, who gets to celebrate him after he wins the title on the Nitro at Bash of the Beach. His brother is nice, and they end the whole angle where they were feuding each other, which is nice. Okay. However, on a subsequent Nitro, she's at ringside after a match involving Booker T and I forget who else. And Jeff Jarrett decides to do a sneak attack. However, he decides to do two things at once. He decides to pull her over the barricade, she's leaning, and also hit her with the guitar. Seems overly complicated. 
I guess maybe you thought if you broke the guitar next in the crowd, that might cause damage. Maybe, yeah. What happens is he basically tips over the metal barricade, kind of hits her in the back as it explodes, you know, from the air near her, and she falls awkward over the top. So it's still an attack, but it's a confusingly layered and also an ineffectual attack, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Someone in the crowd has a Canadian flag that replaces the maple leaf with Scott Steiner's face, and they're actually still willing to hold that up after that atrocious angle in the last match. Now, is that better or worse than the uh, pot leaf? Slightly better, I think. I mean, it's different substances than Scott Steiner, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It does make me think maybe uh, Scott Steiner is made of maple syrup. Oh. I mean, he's so muscular and like filled with liquid from yeah. the not-steroids he was doing back then. <laughs> Uh, please don't kill me, that, you know, it could be any liquid for all I know. Michael Buffer does the ring introductions for this very real world title match. He's still nice enough to give the show a let's get ready to rumble. It does not deserve one. I do miss his leather cap he had for... for yeah, yeah, that was, that was nice. He announces Jarrett is already a four-time former WCW World Heavyweight Champion after first winning the title four months ago at Spring Stampede. Mm-hmm. Booker expertly sells his definitely real severe car door beating as he comes down the ramp. He slaps hands with a fan at ringside and goes to walk on, but someone pulls his arm and he has to awkwardly extricate himself from that, giving the crowd a little bit of a glare. Mm-hmm. Jared attacks as Booker enters, stomping the knee, but Booker fires back, lands varied strikes, and rapidly gets two counts with a roll-up and a powerbomb counter to a Frankensteiner. Booker's sidekick and clothesline send Jared outside, and Booker sends him to barricades. Back in... Jarrett tries a kick counter for a charge, but Booker slides under and pulls him crotch first to the ring post. Twice. Ouch. Ouch. Jarrett bats aside a missile drop kick, and Booker hurts his leg. Jarrett goes to work on the leg with stomps, ring post smashes, and repeated chair shots, and a Boston Crab. Booker reaches the ropes, but Jarrett takes a sweet time breaking the hold. More stomps and chair shots to the leg, but Booker goes up and over on a corner charge and hooks Jarrett with his legs to roll him up for two. Cool-looking spot. Yeah, it's a nice movie you see people do all the time, yeah. Both men clothesline each other down. They're back up at a nine count, and Booker's spinebuster gets two and he hits an axe kick. But Johnson, apparently having never seen a Booker T match before, very awkwardly runs into him and gets knocked loopy during a spin rooney Yep. It looked like he was late, too. Yeah, yeah. Johnson sells that very poorly. He does, yes. Booker tries the Harlem sidekick, but Jarrett clubs him in the knee with his guitar. Booker swears. Yes. Jarrett slaps on the figure four as Johnson recovers, and Booker suffers a couple two counts. Booker can't break the hold or roll it over, but he manages to drag himself backwards to the ropes. Jarrett takes his time breaking. During that bit, Booker kind of seems like he tricks Jarrett into fighting another attempt to roll and manages to drag himself backwards, oh, yeah, yeah. Un- mostly unopposed as a result. So nice, tiny touch of strategy in the middle of that. By the way, it's nice of the referee to ignore the guitar debris on the ground while he lays down to check I mean, the shoulders. Hey, in reality like this, guitars just explode at random all the time. Oh. That's oh. It just happens. Like birds bur- during a birdemic. They just right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. It's a hazard of rock shows that guitar could detonate at any moment. Yeah, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Booker falls out of the ring, and Johnson goes to check on him. Jarrett tries to hit Booker with the big gold belt, but Booker ducks and Johnson gets hit. Booker runs Jarrett into the barricade and sets up a table, and they struggle on the apron until Booker sends Jarrett through the table with the bookend, 
but refrains from taking the bump himself. Yes, that's a nice touch. Jamie Tucker appears as our new referee and reaches a nine count before Booker breaks the count. Back in, Booker pins Jarrett for two as Jarrett gets a foot on the ropes. Jarrett gets a chair, punts Booker in the crotch, and nails Tucker. The commentators wonder if that was an accident. Jarrett wasn't looking at who he was hitting, but at the same time, he doesn't seem surprised to see Tucker down. Mm -hmm. Jarrett hits the stroke onto the chair, but by the time new ref Charles Robinson sprints down, it only gets two. Booker swinging neckbreaker. Jarrett swings the wrong way there. He does, yeah. For two. And Booker finishes a sequence of counters with the bookend for the three count and the win. Booker nurses his leg as he celebrates with his belt. Some fans throw their drinks into the ring, apparently displeased. I'm hoping it's more about the show than about Booker's win. Yeah, I noticed that as well. I was, yeah. Picked the wrong match to do that in, but. Yeah, yeah. Last match. Last match. Yeah, exactly. Thoughts on this one? Honestly, it's a really good match. The only real crime of this match, I say, is it's just overbooked. Russo overbooks everything. Yeah. He seemed to have this sort of weird ADHD mindset of where if something different than happening every five to ten seconds, then people are going to switch channels, apparently, even when pay-per-view, which there's no way you'd switch channels off pay-per-view. You pay 50 bucks for that thing. In the ring, they tell a really nice story of Booker T having the injured knee, fighting through the pain. Jeff Jarrett's really good about attacking it. Still constantly push the one aspect of the match. He knows the weak point is, so he, every time he needs to get back control, he goes at that weak point. There's no breaking that formula in a major way. The thing is, like, this is a real late 80s classic territory match. Thought, thought the exact same thing. This feels like an 80s style match, but like in the best yeah, yeah, no, way yeah. on that. Yeah. Which makes sense given Jeff Jarrett raised those and raised on that kind of yeah. stuff. That said, did they need, I have my count is correct here, three ref bumps, Yes, a guitar shot, multiple chair shots, and a table spot? Probably not. No. At the very least, like, clarify that this is no DQ. Because yeah, it's weird because the chair shots directly to Booker J's knee are not a DQ. Right. The table spot's not a DQ. Right. Anytime you blatantly the attack the referee, it's not a DQ by the next referee. However, when he's not breaking the figure four right away, the ref starts the five count to DQ him on that. Yeah. If repeated chair shots to a knee are not a DQ, you don't need ref bumps. Yeah. Just drop that side of the match entirely. Uh-huh. Exactly. Really, it's a tale of two matches. It's a match being casted really well by two guys who have a lot of experience. They know how to tell a story. They know how to pick a body part and focus on it. They don't leave Booker down so long that it feels like he has no help recovery. He's constantly moving during submission holes, so he's not just sitting there getting his breath. But then the guy booking the match behind the scenes, like, now also, oh, make sure you do this, make sure you do that, make sure all this extra stuff. It's like having a really nice dish and someone keep putting pepper on it and they put this and this and it warped up on the dish. Like, it was fine before. Yeah. And the, and the stuff you're adding isn't necessarily bad on its own, but just the fact that you're adding, like you said, too much stuff in there. Yeah. It's enough spices in the, in the dish already. I'll, I'll eat it, please. Yeah. On our first watch, I only really managed to start getting into this match about halfway through as I just basically wasn't watching the show no, yeah. after the Goldberg-Nash-Steiner debacle. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I couldn't really judge this match then. Mm -hmm. So on rewatch, I intentionally watched this on a separate night from everything else to give it a fair shot, and I'm really glad I did. This was a good main event match built around a nice, clear storyline. Booker attempting to end it fast before his knee became a problem, and Jarrett attempting to make Booker's knee a problem. Mm -hmm. 
Booker sells excellently for most of the match, and Jarrett is good and vicious in his attacks. The two get across the mood of an increasingly desperate and brutal fight. Mm -hmm. There are a few flubs here and there, and like we said, I don't think they needed the referee knockouts. And the DQ rules are fast and loose yet again. But for all that, this was a really fun way to close out what had been an absolutely awful show. Mm -hmm. It's a massive, massive shame that this follows WCW's brutal murder of their entire show (laughs) in the prior match. No, yeah. Watching it straight through, you will not realize how good of a match this is. To your point about the botches, a lot of them are related to all the extra added. Right. There's so many moving parts now. When you now we go, we gotta add a ref bump. So now we need a third person to be at the right place at the time and take this bump well to make this thing matter. Yeah, exactly. In this case, it's a third and fourth person because the second referee as well. And then a third referee as well. Yeah. I do, I do want to slightly disagree with one thing that you said earlier, and that's the bit with him hitting the knee into uh, him hitting the guitar with the knee. Uh-huh. I, I really like that spot. It It's good as a you know another working the limb kind of thing. I realize the, the guitar is balsa wood. Yeah. But if you're picturing in the show's fictional reality that it's not balsa wood, mm-hmm. and it's something that actually would do some kind of damage, then I have no problem with it there. Yeah. More of what I want to compliment is Jarrett's really good at nailing exactly the knee. He is, yeah. With that. Like, I mean, that's, oh, yeah, I that's not easy. That's a moving target. No, yeah, for sure. <laughs> like I said, I 100% get why someone goes, it would be cool if he did jump and kick and you hit him right in the knee as he went at you. Totally get that. Mm-hmm. If you, for some ungodly reason, decide to watch New Blood Rising, mm-hmm. stop after the previous match, pick it up on another night. That is the only way you will be in the mood to get something out of this match. And this match deserves you to be in the mood to watch it. If you're going to watch the Do Blood Rising, if you, and you can search by match, pick this match. It's really good. Yeah. Watch this match, probably the Lance Storm match. Yeah. Ignore the rest of the show. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing the, doing the, if you pick one match to watch, it's this one. Yeah. yeah. Jarrett would get a rematch, built as his last chance match for the title. Debriggs only had like the one, but okay. Mainly he's had a lot of title shots and title. Give it to him already, but still, it's weird that he immediately goes right to the last chance match the next night. Yeah. Well, it's actually not as good as this one. It also doesn't help Booker T as much because they do, again, do interference as a ref bump. Jarrett's about to actually win the match when Goldberg pulls him out and knocks him out, causing a DQ. <laughs> so it's pretty clear Booker T was going to lose if Goldberg hadn't done that. Gotcha. So that's not great for that regard. Especially when Booker T's the face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But that's, again, that's part of this bigger story that Goldberg is you know, off script, and he's, you know, mad at everybody, and he's going to take Russo out, and it's confusing threats. And as mentioned, now that Booker T is firmly established as a champion, he's not going to fight Nash at Fall Brawl. Okay. Tony advertises Fall Brawl and signs off, and New Blood Rising is mercifully done. Yes. So, overall thoughts on New Blood Rising? Like I said before, this is a case of repetition, and it's like too much as a whole. We have two tag team title matches on a show. We have a tag team title match with way too many people in it, both in the match and interfering and, and refereeing for that matter. We have two different matches that are built around you can't trust the referee because they're going to cheat you somehow, although the match styles are very different. And obviously, the terrible decision to destroy Kayfabe, pull it out back by the woodshed, just shoot it in the head. <laughs> yes. Like it's got rabies is obviously a real bad thing. There are salvageable points from this show, for sure. As I said, the Booker T-Jeff Jarrett match, 
the Mike Awesome Lance Storm match. The opening spot fest as a whole is enjoyable. It's there's no nuance to it, and the ending's a little bit botchy, but otherwise it's good. Even the tag time match is overbooked and full of people it is. It gives brief highlights to people that really deserve to get them. Mm-hmm. People on the rise like Sean O'Hare and Mark Jindrak really get a chance to, ooh, look what they can do kind of situation. So I'm not going to say there's nothing to watch in this show because that's not true. And the thing is, as bad as that decision tend to destroy reality in the show itself is, I don't want to take away from all the people that actually worked really hard in this show. I don't want them caught in the blaster as much as it's really hard to avoid that. Yeah, yeah. This was an absolutely awful show. Yes. But not because of the action. Mm -hmm. That was average to good for the most part. Yeah. If it was just about the match quality, I'd still feel the show would probably end up slightly subpar, Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be actively bad. Yeah. It's the storylines that kill it dead. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. On any other show, Judy Bagwell on a forklift and the reappearance of David Arquette would be the worst moment on the show. Yes. A standout moment of stupidity. Mm-hmm. On this show, I legitimately forgot that it had happened <laughs> when we were talking things over after we watched this together. It's true. You did, yeah. There's just so much worse that happens on the show. I know. Judy Bagwell on a forklift pales in comparison to WCW's attempts to throw the entire organization off a cliff. Yes. I won't belabor the... Keebler and Goldberg points anymore. Talked about those enough. Yeah. Suffice to say, they may be the dumbest things that WCW ever did. And consider that this is the company that gave us Arachnaman, The Black Scorpion, Battle Bull, Starcade 1997's Self-Destruction, Ready to Rumble, David Arquette as World Champ, and a show in North Korea. Yeah, and we haven't even gotten to World War III yet. Yes. (laughs) If you can separate the show from its horrid storylines... Some of the matches can be moderately entertaining. Some might even call good. Many performers, like you said, Al, work really hard here. Yeah. Heck, some even work more than one match. Mm-hmm. There's some pretty bad action on here too, though, notably the Hancock versus Guns match. And even the decent to good action can be marred by confusing rules like the opening ladder match. Yeah. Promo content was not great. No. Most were short, several were confusing or muddled. Mm-hmm. There's actually not that many on this show, but it still feels like a case of quantity over quality. If you cut a couple of the short in-ring promo bits, you could have maybe given, say, Booker T more time to fully address the questions about his knee. All told, though, promos are not a large problem on the show, but they just don't do anything to improve it. Yeah, absolutely. Commentary, on the other hand, makes the show considerably worse. Yes. I'm never particularly fond of the Tony Hudson Madden team, especially the last member of that team. Mm Mm-hmm. But here, they go beyond awkward interactions and often horrible jokes and become active participants in the show's worst moments. On other shows, the commentary team has struggled to cover a terrible match going on in the ring. On this show, the commentary is the terrible part of the show. Yeah, that's true. This is almost an inverse of Starcade 94. Right. They're both bad shows, for different reasons, mind you. 94 is just mediocre and oddly booked in general. But commentary, especially Heenan, makes their part very enjoyable. It gives you something to enjoy in the midst of, oh, this is kind of a dull match, or, oh, that was slightly strange, what was going on, yeah. Yeah, but here's Heenan making a joke that you didn't think of, yeah. Yeah, where here, yeah, sometimes what's going on in the ring is not actually that bad, but then commentary is just either making absolutely awful jokes about people, or 
destroying the entire yeah. entirety of reality, doing a Thanos snap of the fingers to kayfabe. Yeah, pretty much. Production was a mixed bag. There's not a lot of technical glitches, but the show looks and feels basic with a bland and generic set. Some entrances do get special lighting and effects, at least. Video packages are better than others in the Russo era, but still don't do a lot to cover match stories. The show doesn't feel as hyperactive as, say, Starcade 1999, No, but it still does feel disorganized. Oh yeah, 100%. Despite not being officially part of the Road Wild series, this show continued the decline that we saw throughout that series. That's true, yeah. And I would definitely call it worse than Road Wild 1999. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not necessarily in action quality. Those last few 1999 matches were a real chore. But definitely in the overall package, it is one of the worst shows that I have ever watched. Agreed, yes. It's a terrible show, but it's it's like a uniquely terrible show. It's a shame because in theory, they want the mindset of, let's build up these new stars we have because our old guard is either gone for good or is supposed to be used to elevate them. <laughs> but I mean, in practice, the old guard is, is in the semi-main event and the worst storyline on it. And you have Sting completely squashing the demon. Yeah. We both love Sting, yeah. but yeah, there is no reason for Sting to win over the demon in one minute. Exactly. So they, they go against their own logic and then against the logic of all wrestling ever before and after. Yes. At least they're consistent. Match of the night and MVP. So Al, what is your match of the night? I genuinely enjoy the Lance Storm Mike Awesome match, but there's little things here and there, whether it's the slight slip-ups or just some things that are kind of rushed, like there's no build-up submissions at all until you randomly just put Dragon Sleeper on and then get to tap out. So a little thing like that and just make it not quite as good as I would hope, but while still being enjoyable. So for me, the clear runaway winner here is the Booker T. Jeff Jarrett match. Okay. They tell a good story. Like I said, it's overbooked, but they themselves tell a good story. And ultimately, the final product, if you can separate it from everything else in the show, is good. Okay. I was choosing between Jarrett and Booker and Storm and Awesome. The Storm versus Awesome match for all my issues with the location that it's being held in and what it does to Storm still was just really entertaining and fun and different. So I I almost get there on it. Sure. But Booker and Jarrett just put on a really focused, almost 80s-style Attack the Limb storyline mm-hmm. that I really enjoyed a lot. And they did a really good job playing that up and giving the match just a clear, clear storyline. Yeah. So that's the one I have to pick. Agreed. MVP? Part of me wants to give it to Awesome because I thought that he does a really good job. Oh, that's the awesome job because that'd be stupid. <laughs> now, I thought that was attempted to do it. But for me, the standout performer in the show is Booker T. He really sells that leg entry. They build up nicely throughout the show. His short promo, while not great, doesn't ruin anything. It's the selling in the match itself. He really sells that well. Even little things like he's more aggressive, like doing the ring post spot to Jeff Jarrett, not what he normally does. Mm-hmm. But he's like, I'm wounded. I got to go in as fast. He really sells the. I got beaten quickly before he targets my knee and takes me out. Yes. And then just building everything up, little things like, again, not taking the fall on the bookend to the table, I assume is a planned thing. Mm-hmm. I'm giving credit for that anyways. So a little thing, he's just, he's just really good. Yeah. Yeah, Booker T is definitely an absolute standout performer on this. Mm-hmm. I, I nearly gave it to him myself. Sure. But I want to go a little bit out of left field on this one. Okay. Because there's someone on the show that I don't, think that I will ever get the chance to pick as a MVP again, but that did a really good job with his role on this show. 
And uh, just since this is a really rare moment to to pick him, I, I want to do it. Okay. For his terrific reactions to the shenanigans in the Storm versus Awesome match, I am picking David Benzer. Oh, I think you were going to pick Jacques Rougeau for that. <laughs> no, Rougeau does does a great job oh, yeah. with his role too. But I just Penzer's increasing aggravation with what oh, was yeah. going on, and just like what are, what what is going on here? Kind of facial expressions and movements and everything. It served to make that match better. Hey, I get you. He so rarely gets to be highlighted like that. Yeah. And he nailed it when when they put the camera on him. So I was I was just really like, I don't get the chance to compliment you that much, guy, yeah. but I'm I really feel like I should do it here. I'll be honest, I didn't think about that much, but no, I, I see your point. Yeah. I'm I'm thrilled that you chose Booker T because one of us definitely should have. Oh yeah. And that wraps up our review of New Blood Rising. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, it's back to 1992 as we start our next series, Beach Blast and Bash at the Beach. First up, we've got Beach Blast 1992 World Championship Wrestling Beats the Heat. I mean, it was held in an indoor arena, so yeah, I figured the air conditioning would be pretty good at doing that. I would hope so, yeah. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. From this t-shirt. Blingo Bob. Ah. It's probably Tank. <laughs> He's coming to attack us. You heard what you said. <laughs> This time, actually later, as opposed to two seconds later. Yes. Wait for the motorcycle or what? A Jeep? What is that? Kind of Humvee, I guess. Rexon is not a small dude. No, he is not. Wow. Airport is busy today. (laughs) Has it like that variant? Yeah. Oh, another airplane. Subject is going overhead. I'll go ahead and save. Okay. Imagine, oh, sorry, playing again. We're just a travel hub today. Yeah. Kind of a strange promo from Vampiro here. Yeah. As we get another plane flying through. It's never, never this many of them. No, I don't think so. WCW would. Pause for plane. Mm-hmm.